0: To you, good day to you, wherever you happen to be as you're listening to this radio program. This is Radio Orbit. My name is Mike Hagan. You're listening to it Monday nights, 11 p.m. until 2 a.m. We do it up every week. And here we are Monday nights again. It is the 13th of March, I guess. Can you believe it? Amazing how fast the time moves these days. And I guess that's sort of the topic of the conversation tonight. We'll be talking a little bit about time and how it moves. Uh, My guest tonight is John Major Jenkins. John was on the program back on the 6th of February. And for those of you who have been listening to the program at least since then, you'll be familiar with John and the information that he brings forth. And he's an amazing guy and someone who I'm uh, building a friendship with. And I'm really proud and pleased to have him on the program again to uh, talk with us again tonight and there's a lot of things that uh, you know there's a reason for it of course there were many things that we didn't get a chance to talk about last time when he was on the air and uh, one of those things in particular was his book the, the main thing that we actually started to, uh, to have our own personal conversation about is his book his most recent one that's called Pyramid of Fire and we barely even touched on it so we'll talk a little bit about uh, his new book or, or his most recent book I should say Pyramid of Fire We'll pick up where we left off, talk about a lot of other things. I have some interesting questions that have shown up in email from listeners since the last time John was on the air, so we'll ask him a few of those. And anyway, looking forward to it. It should be a great conversation with John Major Jenkins. If you want to get a leg up, hop on the web and check him out at www.alignment2012.com. That's dot 2012com And speak of the devil, uh, we're going to have some music tonight from a gentleman whose name is Lucas Klotzbach. And Lucas is a singer-songwriter and a guy who I ran into a few months ago playing music live in Columbia at a place called the Blue Fugue, which I frequent on Monday nights, sometimes before the program. Uh, At any rate, I've been uh, trying to come up with a, a program that would be fitting for the wonderful music of lucas and also the wonderful conversation of uh john major jenkins and i think it's a wonderful uh match and we're going to have a great time with music and with uh information tonight so that's all coming up lucas of course um uh has been playing all around uh, the midwest for quite some time i think he's actually from st louis uh, but we'll find out more about him in just a few minutes when we uh uh, when we talk to him actually in person he 'll be uh, he 'll be in the studio in fact he 's here with me now, so all right, so what else? yeah tonight, John Major Jenkins, we got music accompaniment by lucas uh, the uh, The interesting thing about this book, Pyramid of Fire has to do with this guy. His name was Marty Matz, and Marty Matz was a beat poet of sorts, and uh, that 's uh, an influential style on the music of Lucas as well, so it should be an interesting combination of things tonight all right so thanks for the emails I love it when you guys contact me and uh, certainly with regard to John I have uh, taken note of everything that everybody has uh, asked and I'll uh, try to get to everything with him okay hello to everybody listening over the web the podcasting thing I'm really pleased that that's working out I'm getting lots of feedback saying that the podcast is cool and uh, yeah I'm going to try to get better actually you know at uh, you know, it's a it's a challenge to try to get the um, to try to get the programs uploaded onto the web at sort of the same time every week, so people could actually have an idea of when the stuff was actually going to appear. And unfortunately, my life is a little bit more hectic than that, and I and I always have to do a little bit of an edit. And uh, there's the technology involved in it, and converting the mp3 to blah 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 and compressing and this and that and then actually putting it up on the web so anyway it, it always takes uh, more time than I would like and it never ends up uh, as soon as I would like sometimes it takes longer than others and it would be nice if people knew sort of when to expect it but I'm trying to get better about it and hopefully the technology uh, that I'm using is going to become uh, more cooperative in helping me do it and my friend Larry uh, who's doing all the wonderful website stuff for us out there in California um, is also thinking about this stuff. So we're trying to get better at what we're doing and uh, hoping that you guys are enjoying the show and certainly um, from the emails that you send uh, it appears so and I really appreciate all the nice uh, notes that, that, that you send and sometimes certainly there's some nasty ones but the but the nice ones outweigh the nasty ones by a long way. So. So thanks a lot. Let me hear from you. Uh the email address is Orbit Radio, O R B I T R A D I O, Orbitradio Orbit Radio, at A O L dot com. And uh the website of course, www.mikehagan, M I K E H A G A N, Mike And you can reach me through either one of those simple methods. And during the show tonight, as a matter of fact, we'll be in the studio here, and if you want to give us a call during the breaks, um, Lucas is going to be playing live, so I'm probably not going to be too excited about answering the phone during the break, to be honest with you. So unless it's something really important, please uh, send it in email. And I'll check my email a couple times uh, between now and the end of the program, and I'll try to address anything if it's relevant to the show tonight. But other than that, uh, uh, please, um, we'll just uh, keep the phone sort of off limits tonight. But if it is important, certainly call always. Uh, the number is uh, 573-874-5676. Uh, by all means, you know, if, if there's something important I'm I certainly will pick up the phone, okay? Okay, um let's see, what time is it? We got a few more minutes here. Let me tell you a little bit about uh some guests that are coming up over the next few weeks. And Lucas feel free to piddle around and tune up if you want over there. It's no big deal. That's always sort of nice actually to have that in the background as I've as I've learned. There's nothing like a nice guitar and a little harmonica to set the mood for certain things but at any rate okay next week um well tonight john major jenkins as i said www.alignment2012.com alignment2012.com next week michael sarion michael sarion will be returning he was on the program in december and uh as a matter of fact it's a perfect night to have michael on because it will be the the vernal equinox the spring equinox as it were and uh, that's March 20th and we're going to be speaking actually about the Irish origins of civilization and uh, it's a fitting day to talk about ancient Celtic tradition so we'll do that with Michael Sarion next week that's the 20th of March Monday night of course and the music next week will be provided by my friend Henrik Palmgren Leek will be uh, providing the music uh, from Sweden of course Um the program with michael sarion next week so looking forward to both the conversation with michael and to hear some new music from uh from henrique okay what else uh john lash coming up the uh the week after that that's the 27th of march john lash there have been a lot of people who've been wanting to hear john on the program and uh, i'm one of them so that's coming up in just a couple of weeks all right And if you're not familiar with John Lash, go over to www.metahistory.org. Metahistory.org, and you can check out his work. And uh, let's see what else. The following week, Dennis McKenna coming back. All right, can't wait to talk to Dr. Dennis again. So Dennis McKenna with Stephen Herod Buhner. Uh, That will be on the third of April. It'll be a recorded interview that I'm actually going to record this Saturday. The week after that, Dr. Michael Heisen, my friend, the wonderful dolphin and whale researcher from Hawaii who runs the Sirius Institute and is doing amazing work in communication studies with dolphins and whales and is very close to objective communication with the first ET. Long before the beryllium ships land on the White House lawn, people, Michael's going to be talking to dolphins. And it ain't just... uh, Trivial. Anyway, we'll talk to Michael in a few weeks, James Kent coming up, Richard Glenn Bohr uh, again uh, with Dennis McKenna, that should be a fantastic show. Richard Glenn Boer, of course, if you're not familiar, runs the Center of Cognitive Liberty and Ethics, working very hard to let you control your own mind and your own body and put whatever you like in it. So Richard Glenn Bohr coming up with uh, Dr. Dennis McKenna, that'll be toward the end of April. All right, so lots of great stuff coming, as always, and looking forward to bringing it all to you. So anyway, let's um, take a little bit of a breather here, and I'm going to play a quick promotional piece here that I have to play for the station, and we'll come back with, uh, with our musical guest and friend, Lucas, and he'll be with us in just a few minutes, okay? So stick around. This is Mike Hayden. You're listening to Radio Orbit, and uh, we'll be back in just a minute. Uh-huh. All right, everybody. This is Mike, and with me here in the studio is my friend Lucas Klotzbach, and Lucas is a native of the Midwest. I think St. Louis is that right
1: uh, actually uh, i 'm native from decorah, Iowa
0: really all right yeah, see we' learn things already. so the Midwest was the right statement, but uh
1: yeah, that was right
0: all right so he 's from Iowa and uh, currently though makes his, uh, makes Columbia his home and plays music all around. We're lucky enough to have Lucas tonight in the studio with us. He'll be uh, accompanying the conversation all night. So, uh, anyway, Lucas, before we uh, get going here, there is a MySpace uh, website I want to let people know about so they can uh, find out information about you or your music. What is that, if you can give it to us? uh, It's
1: myspace.com slash klotzbach. K-L-O-T-Z-B-A-C-H. I should have made it simpler.
0: No, that's good. Okay, so it's uh, myspace.com slash klotzbach, K-L-O-T-Z-B-A-C-H. Yes. Check it out there. There's, there's uh, three or four songs that you can download and listen to, and uh, it's wonderful stuff, as you will uh, find out in just a few minutes. So, all right, so before we play a song, well, thanks for being here, first of all. So oh, Thank you for having me up. Yeah, it should be fun. All right, what do you say, Lucas? Let's uh, start things off. I'll let you play a tune for us, and uh, we'll come back, and we'll do space weather like we always do and um, continue the program but uh, we'll be talking to you more throughout the show i guess
1: i'm going to start out with a brand new song doesn't really have a title yet working title is always in the
0: rain perfect all right everybody lucas clausbach this is called tentatively always in the rain
2: the grave diggers are all homeless, and they're standing out in the rain, with all of the play actors suffering from delirium, and the professor, he longs for the loneliness he once felt when he was down in New Orleans. And the conductors made the last call to board the mystery train. Uh, Jennifer, the new Jezebel, she understands dead tongues. And she follows the songs of the desperate clown. And where all the other girls go to put on their pretty faces, she has left herself high against the wall. She is like a child lost in dreaming and her voice cracks whenever she says. live in the desert for a year and i would go for a week without water if i could share a bed again with my favorite lover she has ample breasts and she has natural eyes that constantly change their color are empty now save for the petals of flowers I've borrowed to send her The lies I've told, and I don't know if you will let me follow you down, but I'm sure that we will meet again as sure as. Time, two lonesome pilgrims lost in the rain.
0: you lucas thank you wonderful stuff all right so that's uh that's what you got to look forward to everybody for the rest of the night we'll have more from lucas uh in the next 15 or 20 or so hey lucas what uh, obviously there's some there's some dylan influence there somewhere but what else who who are your major influences uh, i
1: learned to, i learned to play guitar by learning dylan songs so uh, like i said that comes across heavily uh also also a big fan of Tom waits and his lyrical oh, and vocal style. Yeah, I like Waits too. I like the way he incorporates the jazz and blues into the general songwriter gist of things. And I guess some of the lesser-known guys that I listen to a lot are Will Oldham and Richard Buckner, hmm. who are, in my mind, too, the best songwriter. They, they stack up against yeah. Dylan and Waits, in my mind.
0: Wow, that's saying something, too. Yeah. Wow, are you recording any of this stuff? Uh, I... I do a
1: lot of home demos Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to find the best way to present the songs. If I, like, I got a few that I know would be helped a lot if I could find a lead guitar player Mm. or a bass player, and, you know, sometimes the drummer would make the song fill out a little more. But I'm always recording at home and I've got two CDs that I have, I have released.
0: Really? How, How can people find out about those?
1: Um, one of them is on CD Baby, but. They're, that's out of stock right now, and I don't know if I'll be sending any more of them. Okay. But another option is to contact me on MySpace, right, and if you're interested right. in them, I'll find a way to get you get Yeah, CDs. you can always
0: burn one or something. All right, so so let's give out that uh, one more time. It's MySpace.com slash Klotzbach, K-L-O-T-Z-B-A-C-H. Okay? All right, cool. Um, stick around. We'll be back to you in just a few, okay? All right. All right, right now all right that's that's uh lucas everybody and you'll hear more from lucas as we move along through the program tonight great stuff and i can't wait to hear more of his music tonight all right so what else we got going tonight uh space weather let's do this real fast ah the worm moon i was talking to my friends uh as we were walking around downtown tonight looking up at the sky and it's not quite full yet but it's almost there and the worm moon as uh some of our native american ancestors uh spoke of it is uh, becoming full tomorrow night that's on the 14th and it sort of uh, heralds the warm spring days if you haven't uh, seen it yet we saw it a couple days ago as it got really warm 60s and 70s and then man that cold air smashed into the warm air coming up from the south and we got our amazing spring clashes as as we saw last night everybody in mid-missouri uh, for those of you who are listening over the web uh after the fact, we had a we had a pretty wild storm or a couple of them went through here last night and uh that's always interesting. Springtime in the middle of the United States of America because we get these uh this interesting phenomenon that's called the twister <laughs> or the tornado. And they don't happen everywhere. There's only certain areas on, on the planet where they where, where they where they can occur because of what's required for their formation. But anyway, this is one of the, their most favorite places right around here. And last night, the dance was on, and they were battling it out all around, uh, uh, all around Missouri and Kansas and the middle of the country. So anyway, interesting times, as always. Okay, So the worm moon is heralding all of this stuff, the warm spring days, the ground thawing, earthworms moving again, Robins recognizing that and uh, deciding it's time to fatten up a little bit, so on tuesday night uh, uh, tomorrow you might you might behold a rare eclipse actually of the warm moon this doesn't happen very often, uh, but uh, tomorrow night there will also be an eclipse it 's called the penumbral eclipse, and uh when the, I'll, I'll explain what that means it basically is when when the uh, There's a full moon that's rising tomorrow night. It'll be the 14th, of course. And if you look closely at the moon, you'll see in the southern hemisphere of the moon, you'll see a darkening of it. And this is actually the shadow of the earth. And if you can see it, uh, you've spotted what's happening. And this is called a penumbral lunar eclipse. And they're not as dramatic as like, you know, the total eclipse they involve only sort of the, the fringe of the Earth's shadow, as opposed to the uh, the entire dark core of the Earth when we have a a full uh, a total eclipse. But they're but they're pretty cool to observe both of them if uh, if you're interested in that sort of stuff. So you can check that out tomorrow night, and uh, the maximum eclipse time will occur. Well, here in Missouri, it'll be about six. 15 p.m. or so, uh, so it'll just be as the moon is rising, um, uh, but it'll last uh, quite a while for the next hour or two. You'll still be able to view it if you're interested in it uh, for the next couple of hours, but uh, if you're on the East Coast, it'll happen uh, by now, earlier than that, earlier than that, obviously, and uh, accordingly toward the West. So um, there's an interesting graphic of this, actually an animation on the web at... Uh, uh, spaceweather.com, if you want to see what it looks like without actually seeing it, you know, sort of like the Discovery Channel, you can you can learn about nature without actually going into it. Uh, what else? Space weather here, the blue sun. Uh, for the second time this year, a blue sun has appeared over Egypt, and uh, this is supposedly because of a powerful dust storm that sort of swept in earlier this month, uh, but uh, a blue sun occurs when the air fills with, uh, with particles that are just a little bit larger than the wavelength of light that's passing through them and this makes the air act like a filter of sorts and it scatters all the light around it, it allows blue to pass but it scatters everything else. And, uh, so anyway, it's an interesting phenomenon and of course one that uh, I'm sure uh, has folklore attached to it as well all right okay Uh, not much solar activity there's one new sunspot uh, number 858 and it's nothing too remarkable Uh, I don't think there's a really a question that it might develop large flares or anything like that but it's of note certainly the Sun has been very very quiet for a long time now and uh, as we talked about last week the solar astronomers the quote-unquote experts Claim that we're in solar minimum now, and uh, take that for what it's worth, okay? All right, what else is happening up there? Let's see, uh, March 13th, that's today. It's the 20th anniversary of a couple of things, actually. Actually, it's the 20th anniversary of Giotto. This was another one of these um, space probes that was flying by comet Halley, by Halley's Comet. And that flyby happened on March 13th of 1986, And there was some really interesting imagery that was sent back from Giotto. And uh, that was 20 years ago. It was big news in 1986. Halley's Comet uh, came back around for the first time where we actually had a technology where we could actually go up and learn a little bit more about it. And uh, uh, the comets are still very interesting and, and, and mysterious the coma uh, and the nucleus in particular the the the, the coma sort of sh- shrouds the nucleus so the the problem has always been to try to get a look inside at what's happening inside there uh, inside the shroud of the coma well the nucleus every time they get a look at the nucleus of a comet it's very strange it looks like a freaking black hole or something it's like this void and uh, halley's comet was no different the images uh, the imagery that i saw um today when i was going back looking at the giotto probe which took pictures of halley uh, halley's comet 20 years ago m- remarkable and strange strange photos uh, anyway all that stuff available on the web it's amazing how much stuff is just right there just a matter of going out and looking at it i guess but anyway also today march 13th is the 225th anniversary of the discovery of Uranus, uh, William Herschel, actually the guy who discovered Uranus, or at least who, who discovered Uranus in um, in modern times, there's certainly plenty of archaeological evidence that uh, points out that there were cultures and civilizations that existed long before ours that understood that the sun was the center. Of our local universe, at least, the center of our solar system, and that uh, there were nine or ten planets associated with the sun. And evidence of this goes all the way back, you know, five, six thousand years to Sumeria, Mesopotamia. Of course, this is uh, information, you know, that's at the root of some of the work that people like Zechariah Sitchin have done over the years. So, anyway, uh, but 225 years ago, for the first time in the modern age, quote-unquote modern age, uh, William Herschel discovered Uranus. Yeah. All right, what else? March 14th, tomorrow. We've got this lunar eclipse coming up. So, if you want to see that, get outside tomorrow night. All right? The 16th is the 40th anniversary of the Gemini launch. Gemini 8, as a matter of fact. uh, Neil Armstrong, one of our most famous astronauts, was... um, uh, was aboard Gemini eight, and that happened forty years ago. Man, can you believe it? Nineteen sixty six, Neil Armstrong and another guy who was less well known. His name was David Scott, uh, but he um, and Neil Armstrong blasted off in a giant rocket. Man, nobody knew what was happening. I mean, it was absolutely insane at the time. I mean, if you think back, we have the we have the benefit of hindsight now to look at this stuff. But it's like, I mean, the technology. Of, you know, uh, uh, of solid rocket fuel <laughs> and things like this were were very sketchy in the mid 1950s and 60s. I mean, all this stuff came out of Germany, uh, you know, in the in the in the post World War II exodus and uh, immigration of all of the German scientists into the United States of America. And the Soviet Union and many other places, but as we've talked about many times on the program, you know the, the, the leaders in in the uh, rocketry programs in particular, one of the many things. But uh, the leaders in rocketry, Werner von Braun and his whole gang, were brought right over here right after the war. They were prized, prized winnings. You see, they were they were they were the bounty of the war. And this whole idea of trial of of uh, perpetrators of crimes against humanity and all this sort of thing, this is just theater. And uh, you know, certainly there are people that get hung in the theater. Don't get me wrong. Uh, there's always the there's always the goat. Uh, but the idea that there's any real effort made to uh, to take care of the entire problem is uh, is, uh, is absolute silliness. And uh, Werner von Braun and his gang were, were, were among the worst of the worst in Germany in the mid and early 40s and the late 30s. I mean, you know, in order to build a rocket program, you need a lot of people to work. And they got a lot of people to work, let me tell you. And that's well documented. So these guys are now uh, pillars of American. Rocket history. And in fact, uh, if you go to NASA, you go down to Houston, go to Florida, places like that, you'll find buildings and, uh, and programs that have been proudly named after these sort of people. At any rate, uh, I digress. Uh, so Gemini 8 40 years ago. And hats off to the gentlemen and women involved in these programs because it takes amazing balls to just hop on these rockets and say, okay, here we go. And they just lit them up. They sent monkeys and, and, and dogs before humans. That was nice of them, apparently. Uh, but some of the dogs made it back okay, so they, so they decided that it was okay for, uh, for Neil and company. All right, what else? March 19th, Cassini is going to do another flyby of Titan, the amazing moon of Saturn that is revealing incredible secrets as of late. Uh, so Cassini will be doing another flyby of Titan in just a few days, and that imagery will be available... And uh, the best place to go to look at that, I would imagine, is uh, Kent Stedman's we- uh, website, cyberspaceorbit.com. Uh, anytime anything of note happens in those circles, Kent is the first and foremost uh, place to look for it because he's on top of it like, uh, like no one else. And He's an absolute brilliant, brilliant uh, man and artist as well. All right, so that's what's going on. And it's time for me to shut my trap for a few minutes and get on the telephone here, get John Major Jenkins online with us, and we will tell Lucas hello again. What's happening, man?
1: Not a whole lot. All
0: right, let's it's play another, another song for us, another Lucas. song? All right. Yeah, what do you want to play for us? Give me, give me something maybe that, uh, that you can drag out a little bit, uh, just in case I have uh, telephone issues, which is not uncommon.
1: All right. It's not what, what I was that.
0: planning on, but... Well,
1: I, can, I can do this. This one, I, I can play the harmonica on this one forever cool. if you I need love me to. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I like hearing the harp, too. So oh, uh, before we do that, let's actually talk a little bit about this. You put, you're you obviously a guitarist. You play the harmonica. What else? Are those your two primary That's
1: tools? That's all I've ever learned. I learned harmonica and then got bored with that, so I figured I should play guitar. Huh. Right. <laughs> right on. All right,
0: well, let's play so, some. All right, everybody. All right. Lucas Klotzbach, one more time, and I'm going to give out his website again, myspace.com slash Klotzbach. K L O T Z B A C H. And of course, uh, if you get on the web at uh, MikeHagan.com, just click on the music tab and you'll see information about Lucas and uh, everything that we've mentioned up to this point. Okay, so, all right, uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. And this is Lucas Klotzbach. We'll be back in just a few minutes. <music>
2: Do not know if she ever fell in love From the dusty streets of old Mexico.
0: stuff one more time lucas thank you my friend what was that one that one is
1: called the hammer or the gun
0: oh man brutal yeah. <laughs> i love it yeah it's sort of like you know you and i were chatting um before uh, we came down here this guy marty Matz, who's sort of the uh the discoverer of this particular mayan codex that john uh, and i are going to be talking about at least a little bit tonight was a sort of beat poet guy but he had some really dark stuff actually yeah, it was unexpectedly dark. Yeah, I didn't realize it either. I just sort of, sort of began to delve into it, too, over the last few days as I was anticipating this, uh, this show. So anyway, all right, great stuff. One more time, Lucas Klotzbach, and you can check him out at www.myspace.com slash klotzbach, K-L-O-T-Z-B-A-C-H. And we'll have more from Lucas in probably just about 10 minutes or so. But we've got a few uh, things to talk about first here. i got a couple... Uh, uh, stories in the news that might as well be talked about. Where are they, actually? I suppose I should actually get uh, get to them. I used to be really slick and print out all my news stories that I was going to talk about on the program. But now, since we have this web access, now I just go to the website and I can just look at it. And if I can talk long enough to get the website loaded like I just did... Then everything's cool i got them right in front of me all right here's an amazing story uh we, we were just talking about um cassini flying by uh well titan uh, one of the moons of uh of saturn here's another one here nasa's cassini spacecraft may have found evidence of liquid water reservoirs that erupt in yellowstone like geysers on saturn's moon Enceladus. the rare occurrence of liquid water so near the surface raises many new questions about the mysterious moon We realize that this is a radical conclusion, that we may have evidence of liquid water within a body so small and so cold, said Dr. Carolyn Porco. (laughs) That's really her name. I didn't make that up. Cassini imaging team leader at the Space Science Institute in Boulder, Colorado. However, if we are right, we may have, uh, have significantly broadened the diversity of solar system environments where we might possibly have conditions suitable for living organisms. And again, that's assuming that life uh, is only uh, capable of existing in environments where water does exist. That's sort of a human assumption as well. Water certain is, certainly is required for life on this planet, and uh, and there's good reason to you know to look there. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I know that it's a very unique compound, and it has certain uh, it has certain attributes and characteristics that make it. Uh, a very good candidate, uh, you know, for 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 life to be based upon. Uh, but is it the only one in the universe? I mean, come on, how the heck do you know? I mean, look at our data sample. That's what I always say. Just look at the data sample. We have this little bit of data from what we know from this little bitty planet, and there are there's a whole other universe out there. And and induction is one of the most dangerous things that science does. Induction means, well, we saw it here, therefore it must be this way everywhere. That's the headline definition of what induction means. And it's simply a dangerous way to go through life. Uh, because uh, even on this small planet of ours, it turns out that that's not always the case. And we find that out all the time. Sometimes in our personal lives, sometimes in the, uh, the history of uh, civilization. You know, you see it all over the place. But at any rate, uh, uh, when you do find water, I guess it's something to be uh, interested in for sure because then there's the possibility of life as we know it to be found in those particular places. So again, water found on this, on this moon of Saturn called Enceladus. What else here do we have in the news? That's, and that story, by the way, comes from, uh, f- from NASA. That's from JPL. Uh, let's see. Panama's Indian albinos. Listen to this story. This comes from Reuters, believe it or not. This is from a mainstream news source. I'm sure it was on the back page, but listen to this. When Kuna Indian medicine man Mandil Iguina Flores speaks, everybody listens. For his dark-skinned indigenous audience, the albino shaman's milky-white skin gives him special powers. In a quirk of history and genetics, Panama's Kuna tribe has one of the world's highest occurrences of albinos, revered as an elite group that the Kuna call the children of the moon. Kuna mythology puts albinos, who have pale skin and white or ginger hair due to pigment deficiency, at the heart of creation, teaching that God sent his albino son to earth to teach humans how to live. Even today, the Kuna see albino as highly intelligent, and some even claim they have supernatural powers. Now, I don't know if you have to be an albino in their tribe to be a shaman, but there's certainly no reason why uh, uh, some of the things that are associated with these uh, these people aren't uh, aren't true. Interesting stuff. And again, it shows you what mythology, you know, it shows you about mythology. Everybody has their stories, the stories of creation. And it's interesting how, how similar all of them are, actually, when you get to the root of them. And that's one thing that John major jenkins is an absolute expert on uh, certainly when it comes to the cosmology of many of the ancient mesoamerican people and the maya in particular and we'll be talking with john in just a few minutes actually uh, about uh, about just that but it turns out if you go all around the planet i mean you find the legend of the pima indians you know it sounds just like genesis (laughs) you know or you find uh you know the Wasari tribe in africa and it's you know it's the story of the serpent and the gazelle and it's absolutely stunning how how these stories that supposedly are have developed you know on their own without without contact from other cultures or civilizations that were also developing these these things it's just amazing that the mythology uh, lines up the way that it does even, even Christian mythology, I mean, the story of the Christ, I mean, lines up with the Buddha story. I mean, this is 500 years earlier, I mean, and you can line those things right up. You know, you have the temptations, that Christ goes through his three temptations. The Buddha goes through his three temptations. I mean, he sees the, the bow tree, but of course Christ sits at the top of the temple. And these sort of things, they're, 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 the stories differ a little bit, but the, uh, but the, but the basic theme is exactly identical. And then these men both go out and find disciples, uh, you know, that choose their friends basically and help them go out and, and spread the word about a new way to live or a new way to think. And anyway, these mythologies are so similar when you go around the world and look at them. Uh, Joseph Campbell, one of my heroes was somebody who was so, uh, in tune to this whole thing. And, uh, just amazing, and you find it everywhere you look. All you gotta do is go look for it. I want to do a show on the Dogon, uh, an amazing, and interesting tribe of peoples from Africa that have just this outrageous history that goes back thousands and thousands of years, and is connected to the star Sirius, one of the brightest stars in the heavens. Uh, that's associated with Isis in uh, 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 in Egyptian mythology, and a very important star actually. But it turns out the Dogon actually know things about the Sirius system that no that no that no one knew in in quote unquote modern culture until uh, just a hundred years ago or so. Uh, in particular, that being the existence of Sirius B, a white dwarf, a very small star uh, that uh, was not even discovered by modern science until. The mid 1800s, if I remember correctly, but certainly not. Uh, uh, certainly, it's only been at most 100, 150 years. The Dogon have been talking about this around a fire for 5,000 years. How did they know? And I mean, they can give the details. It's astonishing what their what their mythology shows. So anyway, all kinds of interesting stuff, as always, all right? And uh, we're going to get into more of it tonight with uh, with John, Major Jenkins, coming up in just a few minutes. I'll read one more. I'll try to get two more in here real quick before we have another song from Lucas, and then we'll bring John on at the top of the hour. But check this out. Uh, speaking of, of, of mythologies that uh, uh, that are found in many different places around the world, here's a story from, uh, from China, and uh, it says... Serpents reveal links between myths in Australia and China. The rainbow serpent, a mythical creature widespread throughout the continent of Australia, is said to live in water. A closer look at it reveals that these great serpent like creatures, usually associated with the rainbow, seem to bear the closest resemblance to the Chinese mythical dragon. The rainbow serpent is commonly depicted in its terrifying animal form with a serpent like body, kangaroo or horse like head, crocodile teeth, ears, or crown of feathers. Long spiked body and a fish tail. Similarly, the form of the Chinese dragon is also a compound of species: the body of a serpent, the scales of a fish, the claws of an eagle, the horns of a deer, and so forth and so on. Uh, there are also much deeper connotations of the two figures, which suggest the links between myths in Australia and China. Now, this story goes on at greater greater length, but certainly the rainbow serpent is another a direct connection to the mythology of South America and uh, the legend and the mythology of Quetzalcoatl uh, which is uh, again directly related to the work that John has done for the great majority of his his adult life so the last story that I will read here and I'm going to try to read uh, a bit of it here it's amazing I'm going to interview this guy in a few weeks his name is Dr. Alan Goldstein and this article is called, I Nanobot. Listen to this. And it's a long article, but I'm just going to read a snippet of it. But check it out. Get on the web, by the way. I've got these stories and a whole bunch more at the website. So just get get on the web. Go to MikeHagan.com. Click on the news page. And all the stories in their entirety that I've talked about tonight, plus a whole bunch more, uh, you can read them. And you can also get to the source pages uh, so you know that I didn't make them up. All right? Um... Because some of this stuff sounds made up, and that's what's happening. I mean, things are changing so quickly that if you're not really paying attention, uh, uh, things are just going to blow right by. So check this out. Uh, scientists are on the verge of breaking the carbon barrier, creating artificial life and changing forever what it means to be human. And we're not ready, predicts material scientist Alan H. Goldstein, who I just got an email from today and we're going to do a show in the next few weeks. He predicts and warns about the coming elimination of the barrier between living and non-living materials with the emergence of animets living materials, nanobiotechnology devices that can survive and function inside human beings, derive energy from biological metabolism and copy themselves by molecular self-assembly. When that moment happens in the near future, it very likely may be beyond our control. A nanobiotechnology device that is smart enough to circulate through the body, hunting viruses or cancer cells, is by definition smart enough to exchange information with the human body. This means under the right conditions, the device could evolve beyond its original function. Wow. Read that again. Dr. Goldstein uh, has formulated the three laws of nanobiobotics. Check this out. The fusion of nanotechnology with biotechnology, now called nanobiotechnology, will result in the complete elimination of the barrier between living and non living materials. I'm gonna read I gotta read it again. The fusion of nanotechnology and biotechnology, now called nanobiotech, will result in the complete elimination of the barrier between living and non living materials. This is no flake, all right? This is th- this guy's Uh, He's he's just like a super scientist at at one of the big universities, and I don't have his uh, credentials in front of me right now, but trust me, you'll hear him soon. And uh, here's law number two. It is not possible to ensure that devices created using the techniques of nanobiotechnology will only transmit molecular information to the target system. (laughs) And number three, the carbon barrier will be eliminated when humans create the first synthetic molecular device capable of changing the state of a living system via direct, intentional transfer of specific chemical information from one to the other. All right, chew on that for just a couple of minutes, all right? And enjoy the music of Lucas Klotzbach. We'll be back in just a minute with John Major Jenkins. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Whatever you like, Lucas, thanks. Thanks. Mm-hmm. In 1961, an unknown Aztec codex was revealed to beat poet and explorer Marty Matz by a Mazatec shaman in the mountains of Oaxaca, Mexico. The codex presents profound metaphysical teaching describing how the end of time will bring about a visionary ascent. At the behest of his Mazatec teacher, Matz transcribed the pictorial codex into a literary form that would preserve its initiatory teachings and reveal its secret meanings to a wider audience. Pyramid of Fire is an epic poem that provides a vehicle to transport the initiate into the higher realms of consciousness. It represents a barely surviving thread of teachings that have been passed down in secret since the time of the conquest. The solar energy within what ancients called the serpent of consciousness is the spirit by which man is translated to the stellar realm at death. Line-by-line commentary by John Major Jenkins provides insights into the perennial philosophy contained in the Codex and its relevance to our times. That's the uh, the summation of a book called Pyramid of Fire uh, that has been co-authored by my guest tonight. His name is John Major Jenkins. Anyone who's familiar with the program knows who John is. He was actually a guest on the program back on the 6th of February, so we're not going to go... Uh, into a long detail about uh, his resume, but it is extensive, and you can find it at www.alignment2012.com. That's alignment 2012com and you can get that uh, directly from from my website as well, as always. So let's get right to it here. We've got a lot to talk about tonight, but uh, first things first, John Major Jenkins, thanks again. Welcome back to the program.
3: Hello, Mike. I'm I'm very glad to be back.
0: Yeah, we could have talked for a long time the last time you were on the show, and we've had uh, I've had plenty of comments from people uh, who had listened to the program, who had questions and uh, further comments. So I'm glad uh, that we're able to do it again.
3: Oh, so am I. It really uh, was a treat for me to speak with you. You have such a uh, a breadth and depth of knowledge on these things, and it's. Uh and it was really, uh, really a treat for me to uh, talk with you about them.
0: Well, it's uh, vice versa, no question about it. And you know, it's interesting. Maybe we should, maybe that's where we should start, John. I mentioned the book Pyramid of Fire, and, and that's sort of the uh, that's sort of the context that we use to to get you back on the program. But it's certainly not limited to that. Um, obviously, that's your most recent book, and I wanted to promote it, and we didn't even get a chance to talk about it last time you were on the air because we got. Uh, we got so, so wrapped up in, all, in, in so much else, and there is so much else to talk about. But, uh, but Pyramid of Fire, obviously, is one that needs to be talked about a little bit, so maybe we should get that out of the way.
3: <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, that's a good way to slice into it. We'll start uh, with the uh, most recent thing. Um,
0: because we'll digress for sure. You know that.
3: Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the way of the world, and, and uh, we should follow the muse on that, wherever it leads us. Uh, The Pyramid of Fire, as you mentioned, was a a book that I uh, co-wrote with uh, a beat poet named Marty Matz. Um, Marty passed away uh, four years ago, and uh, although he contacted me, I guess it was back in 1994, and uh, actually Terrence McKenna Hmm. plays a role in all of this, because Marty... uh, and his uh, wife Barbara had gone to one of Terence's programs in New York City around that time. Really? And uh Marty wanted to uh Marty and his wife were just back from spending about 7 years in Thailand. Mm-hmm. And uh he uh asked Terence about uh you know what he thought of the pyramid of fire and uh he sent Terrence, the uh, manuscript for the, the transcription of it, which amounts only to about 13 pages. The transcription that Marty accomplished back in the 60s was uh, uh, Marty uh, Marty's translation of the Mazatec shaman reading out the meaning of the pictures, uh, so it, it amounts to about 13 pages, and uh, Terence put him in touch with me.
0: Amazing. Now, John, it's a play of sorts. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, in a sense, uh, the pictographic manuscripts or books uh, from Central Mexico—they were intended to be performed. It was part of an oral performance tradition. Right, right. And they were like sacred books. Mm. And a picture's worth a thousand words, as they say. And. What it really took in order to um, bring to life the content of these picture books was uh, a school of uh, people that were initiated into the oral tradition as to how to do this. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, the story of the Pyramid of Fire Codex apparently is something along the lines of at the time of the conquest. Um uh, many of the sacred books were uh hurried away and you know hidden away, and uh many of them have come to light over the centuries and Of course, scholars think that they 've all pretty much come to light now, and many of them are in museums and scholars have shed much ink over trying to figure out what <laughs> they 're about, right. but with this particular one. Uh, apparently, it was still being held by um, this Mazatec shaman who claimed that he was a lineage holder of this oral tradition and he could read out the meaning of the pictures. And Marty, uh, quite the character... Marty, Let me let me go into Marty a little bit because he, he really plays a, a central role in bringing this amazing sacred book to light. Uh, Marty Matz was... Uh, uh, in the in the mid 50s, he was involved in the beat scene. He was in the the Village in New York City, and he he knew Ginsberg and Kerouac and right that whole gang. Yeah, and then he went out to uh, San Francisco in 1956 and was involved in the emerging beat scene out there. But uh, he had uh, the wanderlust, and in 1957, before the beat movement really hit. Uh, Marty took off for Mexico. So he always would he always said that he sort of missed the boat with, you know, how the book Howl came out by Ginsburg and then Kerouac hit it big with Dharma Bums and uh, on the road and so on and right. Marty, uh over the years like he's recognized more and more as being sort of the lost beat poet. And so he lived in Mexico and he of course, being a poet, he was interested in language, and he was studying the Mazatec language and living in this village. And he befriended this, uh, Mazatec shaman. He went to the sacred caves of, of Sierra Rabon, mm-hmm. which is a, kind of a famous location there in the Sierra Mazateca. Right, right, right. In the northern part of the state of Oaxaca. And, uh, he did rituals there and ceremony with sacred mushrooms and things like that. And eventually, this Mazatec shaman brought out this pictographic manuscript, and, and Marty had a knowledge of Mexican antiquities, and so he recognized it immediately as apparently being pre-conquest.
0: Wow! And by that, for the people who aren't familiar, we're talking prior to Cortez, which is some five, six hundred years.
3: Yeah, yeah. And so um, <clears throat> Marty knew that uh, this was an amazing thing, and the. Huh. The Mazatec man wanted to read out the pictures for Marty because he wanted to, uh, you know, share the information that was right, in it with the right, world. Right. Yeah.
0: Hey, hey uh, John, let's let's talk about something really quick. Um, uh, a clarification about the language,
3: mm-hmm. and
0: the actual Maya language, because i I've, I've been learning more too uh, about this. It's been amazing to me the more I delve into it. Thanks to you, by the way. I forget the actual term of what the language is called i want to say Rabinus or something like that but at any rate it's a pictorial language and people have to understand that the way that it works sort of and correct me if i'm wrong but everything is done with images not not letters they're images and so you might have the image of an eye and, uh-huh. then, and then and then the image of a saw going through wood for example yeah and then and then uh and then like an image of an ant crawling on the ground and then maybe the image of a diamond or something but this would mean I saw ant Jewel
3: right it'd be right. something
0: like that right yes
3: well it's called a rebus language. a
0: rebus okay that's what I was thinking of so let's talk about that a little bit because it's so foreign to the way that we think actually about language
3: well it made it a nightmare for the scholars who worked on deciphering the hieroglyphic language because you know if if it's just purely pictographic, then that's one thing, or if it's phonetic, then that's another thing. but it really seemed to be a combination of uh several different ways of representing things uh with uh glyphs and um Mayan scholars are still working on it, and there has been a lot of progress in in recent years, especially and uh i I don't know it's sort of um <clears throat> It, it belongs to a tradition of writing that is similar to Egyptian hieroglyphics, but not exactly the same. Uh, the Chinese have a sort of pictographic language. Right, right, right. And uh, I, what I think that's interesting about this is that it lends itself to a more multi-dimensional mode of, of consciousness. I guess you'd say Hmm. and that's why it's been very very difficult for scholars of the Western uh, scientific community to to flesh out what's going on in these hieroglyphics Uh, like for example with Egyptian hieroglyphics there's been criticisms around how scholars have decided that well this glyph means this and then it's just one thing but really a glyph it, it has multiple they call it uh, uh, multivaliency huh. multiple meanings. A glyph has multiple meanings, so there's sort of multiple multiple dimensions of a, a possible reading that goes on with these glyphs, and I think that's very true for the Egyptian or for the Mayan hieroglyphs as well
0: well, and you know it makes perfect sense because it's it's the same in a certain way with with our own language, in other words, in English. There's so much that's contextual. Yeah. I, I can say the word glass and it could mean a whole lot of different things. I could mean something that I could drink out of. I could mean a window. I could mean uh, what's, uh, what I'm wearing on my eyes so I can see better. Uh-huh. You know, All of these different things, but it's a matter of the context in which it's used.
3: Yeah, and the, and the real masters in our language, which is an you know, um, alphabetic script language, uh, the masters of, of how to do this are the poets. Mm. because poets can weave multiple meanings, and that's uh, the, the beauty of, of how poetry can open the mind up mm. to uh, a more expansive way of, of perceiving things.
0: And, and music as well, I imagine.
3: Oh, yes, for sure. Music is very much a part of that. Hmm. Yeah, and poetry, that's sort of the segue to how the Pyramid of Fire, even in the translated form that we have in English, because Marty, of course, himself was a master poet, and uh, the way that he transcribed this into English did a really good job at capturing the uh, sacred character of, of the Pyramid of Fire Codex.
0: Fascinating. All right, so let's talk more about the Codex uh, itself. Let's talk about the Pyramid of Fire. What was the story? What's it
3: about? <clears throat> well, as a, a good introduction would be... Um, the book itself is sort of an interesting and unique book. Uh, it came out in November of 2004, and um, I worked with Marty's uh, widow Barbara to include some of his writing in it. And Marty did write an introduction to this, and if I can just read a paragraph that Marty wrote, sort of introduces what this is about.
0: Please, and and, and John, I want to clarify that Marty. This is something that Marty was walking around with for decades right
3: Yes, yes uh, he had come back to the Bay Area in the early sixties and in fact he recorded his reading of it at that time and and it was because of this uh, preserved recording that we were able to recover the uh, lost 13th page of the codex that had been uh, sort of you know lost in the in the throughout the years and you, you know the thing to say is that we don't have the original Pictographic manuscript. Uh, there was no way that the Mazatec shaman was going to, you know, let that go. But we, what we have is um, an authentic lineage holder and uh, his uh, uh, interpretation, his performance, his reading out of the content of the codex. Remarkable. Yeah. And uh, and so this is this is what we have. Um, and I think it it really is up there with. Some of the uh, sacred books that we have from other traditions, uh, like the Vedic tradition, the um, uh, the, the Vedas are, are sure, sacred.
4: The Hindu, books. Yeah. Yeah, the Hindu
3: tradition, yeah. in the Hindu tradition. And uh, Marty would say that, uh, let me just read this here. Um, what Marty liked to uh, point out is that the content of the Pyramid of Fire is. Uh, uh, perennial. It's sacred. It's universal. The teachings and the information in it is um, uh, part of the perennial philosophy that you know writers like Aldous Huxley
4: mm.
3: had written about. And so Marty says that uh, the perennial philosophy has appeared and reappeared in various guises and has been expressed in numberless ways throughout the ages. Nowhere, however, has the secret knowledge been presented in so aesthetically pleasing a manner or reached so high an artistic level as it has in the Pyramid of Fire. The power and the poetry used to express the perennial philosophy in the Codex makes this work unique in the realm of occult literature. And Marty really wanted to emphasize how poetry and sacred poetry Could be read or uh, chanted, perhaps. It's almost like a mantric quality. Hmm. There's a mantric quality to actually reciting the sacred Hmm. uh, material, and that it could then uh, transform the consciousness. And that's what it was intended to do.
0: You know, it's so strange, John, because there—that that's a thread that that moves throughout many different cultures too. This idea of of life and the universe as a as a as a work of literature so to speak you know that that's what all the French were getting all excited about the deconstructionists you know not so long ago that we're talking about how uh, the reason that nobody could understand what was happening was because it had to be read like a book it had yeah. to be spoken wow yeah wow okay so uh... so Maybe a little bit more about the actual story, about the actual uh, p- pyramid okay. of, of fire, and how how it actually pans out. Is it similar in any? Is it again a, a telling of the creation mythology?
3: It basically is, and um, it can. It's basically the story of the universe from creation to um, apocalypse or epirosis. <laughs> It's 13 pages, so page one has to do with creation and the celestial hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And the 13th page basically relates to the new fire ceremony, which is a famous Mesoamerican ceremony uh takes place at the end of each 52 year period, um, the end time conflagration. Now this isn't necessarily a dire uh, prognosis for the world. Because these are spiritual topics. Hmm. And,
0: and again, contextual, perhaps.
3: Contextual in, in in what sense?
0: Well, I don't know. It's It seems like that's the whole nature of these things that we've been talking about, is that they're contextual, and it's hard to really grasp maybe what the exact meaning is without sort, yeah. of, sort of being in their shoes or something.
3: And there's actually multiple contexts. Like on one level, it can have to do with the ultimate... Uh, dissolution mm. of the world and the return of the all-manifestation returns back into the unmanifest ground of all being. Uh, this is part of the cosmology of, of the Maya and mm-hmm. the Aztecs. So on that big, grand level, um, it applies in that context, but it also applies in the context of an individual life.
4: Mm.
3: So on, on at the end of our lives, when we die, we return back into the infinite, eternal, unmanifest ground of all being, and it's in Im- its imaged in some ways as a fire, the fire of transformation. Death is the great transformer, um, but then there's a rebirth, so that's yeah, part yeah, of right. part of the whole cosmology as well. So from the first page, which is about creation. Um, you run through thirteen. It's like a thirteen-step program, you might say.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you get it run, the extra step.
3: Yeah, which is, you know, that that's parallel to the uh, the thirteen sacred numbers in the Maya calendar.
0: Right, right. Uh, a whole another story. This the the uh, the story behind thirteen. You know, and the reason why superstition uh, looks at the number thirteen in our culture as something that's bad, like bad luck. But I think that that's probably something that was by design maybe
3: oh sure it's a it's a key concept in the maya calendar because
0: right and the 13 moon calendar right
3: well there's 13 moons but there's also 13 days Mm. from new to full which is a little um counterintuitive but Mm. in fact you don't really see the new moon until a day after complete moon dark so that's Day one, you see it as a little sliver mm-hmm. in, in the western sky right after sundown, and then the Maya would count from there: one, two, three, four, five, and then the moon is sort of looks full for for some two days. Really, yeah. Right so, now we've
0: got full moon tomorrow night. Oh, that's
3: right. You yeah. know, and
0: and tonight it's very. They call it the worm moon. I was talking about it earlier tonight. Uh, the Native Americans called it the worm moon, or at least certain uh, certain tribes did. is that? They called it that because it was a time of the warming of the earth and the spring, oh,
4: uh,
0: and and the earthworms were starting to move again, and the robins knew it, and they started to hunt for their worms, and it's the whole idea of the, the rejuvenation of the springtime. Beautiful. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing.
3: Well, probably some of the superstition around that has to do with the, uh, you know, in the Middle Ages, probably is where the superstition around thirteen developed, is that uh, the uh, the coven's would get together and, and the on the full moon and they would do Mm -hmm. their rituals and stuff like that right
0: and the new moon perhaps too
3: right
0: right interesting all right well look uh john we've got about 25 after the hour so let's take a break here and we'll have uh our uh our friend lucas play us a tune and uh
3: lucas say hi to john by the
1: way hey john how you doing it's an honor to be on the show with you
3: tonight hi lucas i was listening sounds good thank you all right we'll let lucas
0: uh indulge himself again for a moment or two here, John. Take a breather. We've got about five minutes or so. And uh, everybody else will be back in just a few minutes. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is John Major Jenkins. And uh, he requires no further introduction, but you can check him out at www.alignment2012.com. That's alignment2012.com. You can also get there directly from my site at MikeHagan.com. All right, uh, back in just a few minutes with John. And uh, enjoy it, everybody. Uh, we've got a few people in the station here uh, listening in, so thanks for coming down, and thanks to everybody else who's listening. We'll be back again with uh, another hour and a half to go with John Major Jenkins. It'll be fascinating, so stick around. Go for it. Mm-hmm. Klotzbach, everybody. That was called Hail Mary, I think. Yes. And uh, a great tune, and that one's available for download, as a matter of fact, and you can check it out uh, at your website. Is that right?
1: Yeah. It's one of the ones on MySpace.
0: Yeah, okay. And again, that uh, that site is www.myspace.com slash Klotzbach, K-L-O-T-Z-B-A-C-H. All right. We'll have more from Lucas uh, at the top of the hour or thereabouts, okay? Thanks, Lucas. Thank you. bye right, man. Um, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. It's about 1230 a.m. It's now Tuesday morning, the 14th of March, and it is the full moon 14th, and we're talking with John Major Jenkins. You can learn more about John at www.alignment2012.com. And uh, right back to him. John, thanks for sticking around. Oh,
3: I'm still here. <laughs>
0: I'm sure. All
3: right, look, uh,
0: I have a question here regarding, and, and this was something that we, we talked about a little bit over email, and I'm just sort of getting into this as well, and it's Jeff Stray's work. Yes. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a book that he, that he wrote, and it's actually been out for a little while, I think, uh, uh, but, but you wrote um, the introduction to it, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, all right. So you wrote the introduction to it. The book is called Beyond 2012, Catastrophe or Ecstasy? and the title alone uh, you know is is pretty provocative so what uh, uh tell us a little bit about that work and tell us a little bit about Jeff Stray and your relationship to him and what you guys uh, obviously you're you're yeah. not alone in all of this work so
3: oh it was great uh, to meet Jeff uh, back in 1999 when I was in England for a conference I met Jeff and I was very amazed at what he was starting to do at that point he was Starting a website uh, called Diagnosis 2012, and through the years, his website really grew to be a pavilion for all things 2012. And, and Jeff really uh, has a way of of uh, analyzing, contextualizing um, in an unbiased way. Uh, but also in, in sort of like a fact-checker sort of way. Like, right. I mean, with 2012, there's just all kinds of things that are <laughs> popping up, and, and uh, Jeff would uh, sort of, um, I guess you'd say, review some of the books that were coming out, everything from novels to visions to, mm. you know, nonfiction research. Right. And, uh, I mean, all of that deserves to be expressed and, and looked at, um so Jeff's website really grew and, and has really become known as like the place to go for all things 2012. And uh, so he was interested in sort of distilling the best and the worst of the website mm-hmm. and putting it on view. And the book that emerged was Beyond 2012. It wow. came out uh, about eight months ago I'd say eight, eight ten months ago and it's only a UK release at mm-hmm. this point he's looking at getting distribution in the United States um,
0: can you get it for people
3: well yeah as a matter of fact I I'm offering I I have a case which isn't really a lot I'm down to about probably ten copies now
0: it sounds like a fine wine or something
3: yeah exactly <laughs> import I've got a case you know? UK import fine wine <laughs> and they're going fast but I, I, I have uh, several copies and people can go to my website if they want to buy a copy okay um, and Jeff's work is interesting because he has an eagle eye for he's got a good BS meter you might say and the problem you know that that is really starting to happen is that and it's almost like a phenomenon that's to be expected with 2012 is that as we get closer Mm. there's going to be more and more noise and it's going to be really hard to separate you know who's really trying to uh, elevate the discussion in a way that is beneficial to clarity Mm. Um, and then of course that means well from what perspective are we coming from in trying to understand 2012 because you know my perspective is that it's important to go to the heart of the the site that invented the 2012 calendar that's been my MO for you know 10 11 years now and that site is called IZAPA and that's been the centerpiece of a lot of my my research and in fact we can find amazing things at IZAPA there's a whole spiritual teaching there there's you know, carved monuments, and uh, there's a prophecy there at the site. And, and,
0: and hey, John, let, yeah. me, let let me jump in and tell everyone that you know if they if they want to get familiar with that, that they should go listen to the show that we did a month ago.
3: Exactly.
0: Uh, I mean, you went really deeply into the the Izapa cosmology. It was awesome. And it, and uh, for people out there, if you hadn't heard that show, or if you want to give it a listen again, because a lot of this stuff you know it's sophisticated stuff and sometimes it takes a while to sink in and you learn more every time you hear it or you read it that's the way these things work so you know familiarize yourself with it keep you know go back and go back to the well so to speak but anyway
3: exactly And the the book that I wrote on that is called Maya Cosmogenesis 2012 absolutely that's also available on the website and in bookstores but Jeff uh, really collected all these different things that were emerging and there are also uh, people have, have been having visions and dreams, mm-hmm. and that's not something to be taken lightly either, because 2012 has sort of grown to be an archetype of, of transformation. And so what Jeff's book does is um, he puts it all on the table and he comes up with a very, very interesting, synthesized theory. Uh, about what, uh, what 2012 is about. And it does have to do with the transformation of consciousness. And, uh, so pretty interesting stuff. And, you know, Jeff is one of the, the leading, uh, thinkers, uh, because he has an understanding of all things 2012 because mm-hmm. he's been immersed in, uh, and his website too is just, a an extensive archive. Um, I guess, uh, you could go. Probably go to my website and get the link to Jeff's site from there.
0: Let's see how fast I am.
3: I'm trying to think. You'd probably have to down into the link page or something like that.
0: <laughs> That's all right. But the 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 point is, this book is a synthesis of all this stuff. That's pretty interesting because, like you say, it's not just maybe a scientific aspect or a or a or or a metaphysical one, or even you know where some people would say, well, it's just you know, la-la with dreams and this sort of thing, but it's a conglomeration of all of it, so it's more like a, a representation of the zeitgeist or something, of what's happening in the... in Right. The...
3: And, it, and it and it comes not without critical analysis, which I think is really important, because I think Jeff raises the bar, hmm. and he's sort of sorting out the wheat from the chaff a little bit. And that that's really important, I think, because, you know, one of the things that's going to be happening is, uh, and it's already happening, is that, people are going to be jumping on the 2012 bandwagon simply for the the profits mm. that it promises. You know, you can design a, a Hollywood movie with the doomsday thing going or write a book. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of uh, showmen out there just for the showbiz aspect of it. You know, step right up, the latest doomsday date or something. Well, the thing is that the the whole topic is, is much more... Um, it, it requires a much more sophisticated approach than that mm-hmm. uh, because as I've shown in my books is there is a very profound unrecognized uh, alignment that's taking place and that seems to be what the Maya were intending to target with their 2012 date
0: right and you know what John that that is such the centerpiece of this whole thing that I think that it, it, it bears going over again for, for people who, who haven't heard the story and for those uh, who have it's certainly worth hearing again so why don't we go over a little bit about the actual astronomical event okay uh, and the alignment that actually is going to occur and, and this is th- this is based firmly in science and, and please tell us a little bit about it right
3: oh in a nutshell good. I, uh, that's, that's the challenge that I need uh, 30 seconds or less I, I need to figure out how to explain all this and...
0: well you have 30 minutes
3: Oh, okay <laughs> well we want to move on to other things too uh, but this is the important thing with 2012. Uh, basically, of course, the Maya were uh, stargazers, and we know that, so it's it's understandable that they were tuning into some kind of celestial process. 2012 is the end of the long-count calendar cycle, and um, basically there is a very large astronomical cycle called the precession of the equinoxes. The Earth wobbles very slowly on its axis. And one complete wobble takes 26,000 years, and the effect of this is that it changes our angular orientation to the larger universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The effect, the most noticeable effect that even ancient cultures could notice, is that the sun on the solstice or the equinox will shift into a new constellation every oh, about every 2,000 years. Yeah, 2,100 years. Or something. Yeah, and that's that's the familiar. Uh, signs of the zodiac and we're in the age of Pisces right now and astrologers talk about this but it is really an astronomical process or phenomenon and we're currently going to be shifting into the uh, age of Aquarius because the sun on the March equinox will be uh, shifting into the sign of Aquarius.
0: Which is a week from tonight as a matter of
3: fact. Yeah right, right. We're going to be entering uh, yeah, the, the equinox is a week from tonight. Mm-hmm. Well, the Maya were tuned into these things, but they also noticed that the Milky Way is a very very prominent uh uh visual sight arching through the heavens and they they thought of the Milky Way as a very important thing. Mm-hmm. And so the you know, western astrology tends to focus on the 12 zodiac signs, but the and those are sort of abstract you know, because they're not all exactly 30 degrees each and so on, but the Maya tuned into the actual visual thing out there, which is the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. And basically the sun on the solstice has been slowly shifting towards the Milky Way with this process of the Precession. Okay, and um, it's been shifting towards that part of the Milky Way that contains the, the galactic center, the center of our Milky Way galaxy. It's it's, uh, a, it's wider, and it's filled with more bright stars, so even naked eye stargazers could notice this part of the Milky Way as being interesting. They called it, the Maya called it the, the womb of the mm-hmm. Great Mother, Gosh. the creation place in the sky. The astronomers call it the nuclear bulge.
0: <laughs> and uh, yeah, That's their wonderful language for it, you know.
3: Right. John,
0: I have to say something, if you don't mind.
3: Sure.
0: Um, first of all, thanks, and it's amazing. As as you describe it, because it brings, you know, it builds the image in my mind um, of the core, the center. But it also it gives me a chill almost. And uh, I even noticed it in your voice. It's almost like you have to lower your voice. You know, like you don't want to speak it almost. Mm
4: -hmm.
0: And it's such an amazing thing to think about. You know, outside of the scientific explanation about what's really going on there. I mean, this is creation. Yeah. I mean, we're as close to it as we can come to figuring out.
3: There are great mysteries in the center of the galaxy,
0: too. Absolutely.
3: There's a, a black hole there, which is a singularity. You know, with
0: time What's and that space all about? You know?
3: Yeah, exactly. So what does it mean, then, that our sun on the solstice will be lining up with that place in the sky? Well, it brings up all kinds of considerations as to... Uh, you know you know how we are related to these vast cycles of time and the maya apparently believed that when the sun lines up with the center of the galaxy which is taking place in the years around 2012 that we would be transformed the earth would be going through a a transformation and you know well look around us certainly there seems to be something amazing going on as this rare galactic alignment is maximizing.
0: Yeah, it's hard to argue that. I mean, you can argue lots of different things, but it's hard hard to argue that something
3: isn't going on. And I think it's interesting that the so-called Mayan prophecy, which usually prophecy is ridiculed as kind of a free-floating vision that that some crystal gazer had or something, but the Mayan prophecy for the transformation of the species is actually anchored to an empirical Astronomical events, so that's where you get the as above, so below thing. Hmm. We should expect that the big things happen in in the physical realm as well as the the spiritual realm. Right,
0: as above. They're so linked below. up, yeah. Internal, external, same thing.
3: Right, right. Microcosm, macrocosm. It's a real beautiful thing. In fact, Terence Terence McKenna, in his he wrote the introduction to my book Maya Cosmogenesis 2012, and and he suggested that the new science of of uh, dynamics should be the the science that treats this thing, uh, because it has to do with uh, how the subnuclear realm operates in resonance with the larger universe.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know it brings a smile always when I hear Terence, and he. Um I'm going to do a show, as a matter of fact, with Dennis. In, oh, great. Uh, we're, we're actually going to talk this Saturday, the 18th, and I'm going to record it. It's a combined show with another gentleman. whose name is Stephen Herod Buner. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Stephen. But uh, anyway, uh, Terrence, of course, just uh, talk about language failing, you know. Um, it's, uh, it fails every time I try to describe him. But he was awesome, and and uh, it's amazing how his work and your work and all this other stuff converged. Uh, and again, strange words, you know. I've got emails here coming on my ears, by the way, about Terence. I mean, so many people uh, who responded, uh, you know, from your appearance last time, John, uh-huh. have sent. I've got lots of different emails, but there's a whole bunch that all, uh, you know, were wanting to ask John more about this connection. With Terence and, and and the and the mind connection, which really was, was something that he was unaware of when he was developing his deal, but I don't know. We're going to have to revisit that at some point. I don't know if you want to do it now or if we want to wait till the top of the hour and give it a whole half hour or something like that.
3: Yeah, let's do that.
0: Yeah, let's do that. So let's uh, anyway. We'll come back uh, for everybody if you want to hear us talk a little bit more about Terence McKenna and the relationship uh, to his ideas with novelty theory and the I Ching, the amazing uh, Chinese divination tool that's five, six, thousand years old and all this other stuff. John is uh, certainly well versed to talk about that. so we'll talk about that at the top of the hour and now we'll continue with uh, now that I'm completely lost, John.
3: <laughs> well, we were just following the thread and it and it leads through um, I forget what we were talking about well we've, we've we been launched... talking
0: about yeah. Jeff Stray and I think right. a- actually tell me a little bit about the introduction to the book because what's your that sort of synthesizes it for me, what your thoughts on, on it are?
3: well yeah and and what I was trying, as I introduced Jeff stray's book, I wanted to contextualize what he had accomplished in beyond twenty twelve and how it was such a welcome development in the realm of uh, what we might call twenty twelve studies. I mean, mm-hmm. I refer to Jeff as the first the first true twenty twelve ologist who really had a grasp of the entire spectrum of the phenomenon Mm
0: -hmm. and was able to to, to make a a reasonable assessment of the material that he was seeing
3: that's right and so he really raised the bar and Mm -hmm. I think that we need more of that we need a clear examination of what's going on because I think one part of the phenomenon is is that um, 2012 is an archetype for change for real transformation and healing we have to deal with the projections the shadow projections Hmm. in our culture, basically, the collective shadow projections. So the 2012 phenomenon is going to contain a lot of the shadow projection BS stuff, and that's going to be coming up a lot, and and that probably most clearly manifests in the doomsday prophets is what I refer to mm-hmm. you know and uh, it's kind of a simplistic thing to say that well look at the Mayan prophecy it says the world's gonna end All right well yeah. that's just n- not even really true I mean if you look at the Maya creation myth it it says that at the end of each world age human beings are transformed
0: right and see that's the thing is that everybody gets stuck or at least many people in our in the Western world frame of mind gets stuck on this idea of linear time in history where much of the stuff that we talk about historically is cyclical. Right. And, and, and in other words, yeah, it may be the end of a cycle, but it's the renewal or the beginning of something new or whatever. It's never really over.
3: Yeah, we have to become more sophisticated in our thinking because this can be a very deep meditation um, through which we can all benefit. Mm-hmm. But for those that are indoctrinated into the linear Western, you know, Concept of time, as you mentioned, and and if they can't, you know, make their conceptualization of these things more sophisticated in order to embrace the importance of the cyclic time idea, uh-huh. well, then they're just going to be stuck with the the apocalypse, oh, man. the linear time apocalypse. That's going to be their belief, and uh-huh. you know what we believe uh, can become a self fulfilling prophecy.
0: Y- yeah, in fact, oftentimes it pretty much turns out what you get.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you got to be careful what you believe. Exactly. <laughs> wow, that's pretty uh, as as simple as it is. It's a pretty profound, well, you know.
3: Well, that's uh, why um, uh, the the subtitle to Jeff's book is "Catastrophe or Ecstasy." Mm. And uh, I, w- the way that I would explain that is, um, uh, cat- catastrophe could be, um, you know, Terence talked a lot about. Uh, um, Boundary dissolving experience on psychedelics, mm-hmm. and how beneficial that was for the visionary to have that experience, which would be sort of like basically your ego gets temporarily obliterated, and then you're immersed in the the flow of life, unconditioned by our ego and its mm-hmm. you know desire to control things. So that can be experienced as a catastrophe mm-hmm. by a person who clings to the ego no question, but for the but... person who's willing to let go and immerse themselves in in the flow of of wisdom and knowledge and being then it's an ecstasy mm-hmm.
0: wow so that again i mean this is just amazing every every time uh, i hear you mention something in a different way the last time you were on the air but it just strikes me because it's it's as if you have to be ready for it,
4: mm-hmm. sort
0: of, right? And if you are, you ride it, you ride the wave. If you can't, if you're not ready for it, it smashes you.
3: Well, yeah, I guess you could say that. Uh, and it, that is a good thing to sort of like, uh, you know, ring the call to, to be ready for life. Uh, I think we should be striving to be ready for the unexpected and be open to, you know, to the unexpected yeah, in right. our lives at all times.
0: Right. I mean, I guess that's that's the lesson we see it all the time. The, the last time you were on the air, uh, I had a friend who had just passed away in uh, Colorado, as a matter of fact, and I mm. talked about him on the air. His name was Tim, and he was only thirty-five years old. Oh. And, wow. it, and it was a total, you know, one of those things. And it's just like you're talking about. Life is very capable of throwing sharp turns. You know, and 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 you see it on a personal level but of course again as you said earlier as above so below it can happen on a big scale too
3: that's right that's right and we all go through ups and downs in mm-hmm. our sort of uh awakeness as we go through life but uh right. yeah we're always uh should be engaged and, and uh on on the uh journey and in the work that we're doing to stay open and conscious
0: yeah and just experience it i mean i don't you know i don't tell anybody what to do but you know just gosh at least Live your life and do something, you know, whatever whatever makes you fly.
3: Yeah, that's like what Joseph Campbell would say: follow your own bliss. That might sound like an individualistic, sort of narcissistic thing, but in fact, it's not. Because mm-hmm. if you really tune into your bliss, you find that it's a path that leads into the great collective, eternal reservoir of bliss. Huh.
0: Well said, John. All right, that's a great place. Uh, a great place to take a break here. So let's do that, okay? Okay. All right, uh, everybody, my guest is John Major Jenkins. Again, information about John and his books and writings and many other things available at www.alignment2012.com. You can also get there directly from uh, MikeHagan.com. You'll see John posted prominently up there on the front page. And it is just about five minutes till one o'clock. Now on Tuesday morning, the 14th of March, This is Mike, and you are listening to Radio Orbit. One more time, John Major Jenkins. We're fortunate to have him with us again tonight. It's only been maybe five or six weeks since we had the uh, good fortune of talking to John earlier, so we'll take advantage of it, and we'll also take advantage of the wonderful music being provided tonight by Lucas Klotzbach. And information on Lucas can be found on my website. Just click on the music tab or go directly to his MySpace page at myspace.com slash Klotzbach, K L O T Z, B A C H. All right, Lucas, what do you want to do for us here?
1: I'm gonna do another song that's found on my MySpace site right now. It's called Still and Silent.
0: Still and Silent. All right, wonderful, thanks. And I'll try. And I'll try to fix that. All right. All right. E- great stuff there obviously lucas klotzbach live in the studio here with me on radio orbit it's straight up one o'clock and we've got john major jenkins on the line from colorado the northeastern plains if i remember correctly that's right john huh
3: yeah northeast of denver so out in the plains but the mountains are visible
0: yeah, no doubt. What's uh, what's happening out there? We had some wild, freaking storms here last night, and it had to probably come from your direction. What was happening out there a couple of days ago?
3: Um, yeah, we've had some storms rolling through, so there's been some snow and uh, some wind, and uh, real real back and forth, and then the sun comes out for a day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: all right, I had to check email there, and again, we'll, we we spoke a little bit before the top of the hour, but let's. Talk a little bit more about Terence here because there's a, there's quite a bit of interest in, in this whole deal, and, and I'm going to read one email here that's sort of representative of a lot of them, okay? I'm not going to read them all. I'll read one okay. here. To you. This is a guy. His name is Matt. He says, uh, Terence McKenna always spoke about psilocybin mushrooms as having a teaching voice that became audible during the shamanic journey. Terence said that this was the teaching voice that taught him about the I Ching slash 2012 time wave theory please ask John Major Jenkins do you think the Maya's also heard the teaching mushroom voice and that they learned about the year 2012 this way as well thank you so that that leads us to the question and and, uh, perfectly put well enough
3: what do you think yeah uh, definitely Um, there's no doubt about it and you know we could talk about terrence's theory and the novelty and then compare it with my alignment work and how it's in the ball game and so on but this is really a good way to launch into it because it's undeniable and you know terrence himself mused on the strange reality that it seems like people that get into this 2012 question they all sort of have the the psilocybin experience in their little kit bag, you know, and, and what is it about that experience that makes people predisposed to to sort of getting it? Um, to answer the question, though, yeah, we can go back to the early site of Izapa, about 2,000 years ago, and uh, a really amazing site. It's the place where the Long Count calendar, the 2012 calendar, was invented. Mm-hmm. As well, the, the Maya creation myth is portrayed on the carved monuments of Izapa, uh, the first recognizable place in the archaeological record where we find the hero twins and their adventures. But the third factor with Izapa is that um, in the region around Izapa, sacred mushroom stones were found. These are stone effigies which indicate uh, a mushroom cult was there.
0: Wow, I mean that's astonishing. Now, do we have any idea about time frame? I, I mean, I know it's difficult, and I, I, and maybe this is something you might actually be able to speak to. But I have listeners all the time that really question, you know, archaeological dating and all this sort of thing. But what's your position on all that sort of thing, John?
3: I I think that it doesn't really
0: doesn't really matter. I
3: well, it's it's kind of like uh, it's not really a source of great. Um, controversies or revisionism really i don't know i guess i tend to trust the carbon 14 uh, dating uh, methods uh, but it seems like these mushroom stones are dated to the time when izapa was experiencing its heyday which was about 2100 years ago
0: Uh, and and again regardless it was happening at some point Uh, so it really oh yeah i mean it's not that big of a deal when you start to try to decide if it was Two thousand or three thousand or whatever, however many thousand years. Exactly.
3: Ago. I think the, the the real interesting question is, well, apparently the sky watchers and shamans of Izaba, those who invented this 2012 calendar and the creation myth, they were being informed by experiences mm. from these uh, psilocybin mushrooms. So, what is it about the experience that allowed them to grasp this galactic cycle? Wow and the and the alignment that for them was taking place some 2000 years in the future. Right.
0: Why were they concerned with something that was taking place so far ahead of their own uh, frame of, uh, in in time?
4: Yeah.
0: Hey, John, and let me ask you something else now. Or or let me ask you to clarify something for the listeners. Okay. We've we've spoken a little bit now about the the Maya and their interest in the stars. But speak a little bit about the sophistication of their interest in the stars and how and how serious this calendrical system really is.
3: Well there's evidence at Mayan sites and at Azapa as well as earlier Olmec sites. The Olmec civilization predates the Mayan civilization mm-hmm. by a thousand years or so. Right, right. And it's evident from certain Olmec sites like for example La Venta. This site had a main axis that was oriented to the stars in the Big Dipper. But to the north, uh, but the stars in the Big Dipper they shift their rise positions along the horizon they shift with this precession. And uh, what they did, the Olmec, they apparently they tore down the main axis of their buildings and, and repositioned it a few degrees further to the east to account for this shift. And they did that at least three times. So this indicates that they were aware of procession, and in terms of sophistication, you know, it's it's pretty much uh, well, it's it's been considered controversial among scholars whether or not the ancient Mesoamericans were aware of procession. But these kind of things really do indicate that they were
0: right. And and uh, and again, for for the listeners, procession is something that was only discovered by modern science, by Western science. When?
3: Yeah. Well, yeah. The. Uh, well, this is a good comparison too because it, it brings up a, a misnomer in, in how advanced a society needs to be in order to recognize precession. Basically in the second century BC, the Greek astronomer Hipparchus, he, uh noticed and measured precession and he was only using star data that was 140 years old, so he had records from previous Greek astronomers. Of star positions that went back 140 years, right. and with that he was able to notice that the stars were rising in different positions, and uh, so and extrapolate. you
0: extrapolate. Know, wow, that's amazing. yeah. You don't
3: have to have yeah. 20,000 years of records going back to the ancient Atlanteans or anything like that to, <laughs> to notice these things. It just requires an astute, conscious. Um,
0: observance observance
3: yeah Yeah. and the Maya definitely had records coming down from the Olmec I mean it's stargazing was that kind of thing it was like the calendar system the calendar system has been followed the 260-day sacred calendar has been followed unbroken for some 2,500 years Wow yeah
0: well you know the other thing that that uh, uh, that you remind me of again is this The idea of the Milky Way, you know, and how it was such a profound image, actually, of you know, a a physical thing, a real thing that you could see in the nighttime sky. And many people now live in the cities, and things like this, and there's tremendous amount of light even at night. And the Milky Way is not something that is readily visible, you know, to a great many people on the planet. So the sky even looked different then, I imagine.
3: Well, sure, um, you didn't have light pollution, but also the sky and the Milky Way in particular will look very different when the mind is opened up on mm. a substance like a sacred plant like um, like, like mushrooms. Like I, mushroom, yeah. I'd really like to collect experiences. I know that um, Ralph Abraham mentioned once, Ralph Abraham was part of the trilogue
0: Sure, that, him and Rupert. And, yeah, uh,
3: Rupert Sheldrake and Terence McKenna. Ralph Abraham, he's a chaos mathematician out of Santa Cruz. Yeah,
0: wonderful dynamicist chaos theorist from Santa Cruz.
3: Yeah, he mentioned one time when he was, you know, high on uh, psychedelic that he was laying in this in his hot tub out there looking up at the Milky Way, and he definitely could could sense that there were energetic streams going on up there in different places in the Milky Way. Not sense, but see. Yeah. So the, the, the mind, the consciousness opens up and, you know, I think we what we have to get past is the idea that modern science with its machines and telescopes, certainly there's amazing discoveries happening, but uh, the Maya had a different methodology for opening up to knowledge from the universe. It was a more direct Gnostic method mm-hmm. in which the consciousness itself could open up to um understanding about what was going on in in the larger cosmos
0: right and and it's interesting because there are well we might as well be frank about it the person here who writes and he he mentions that terence used to talk about a voice that would actually speak and anybody who who has had you know a a a deep psychedelic experience with the mushroom or and i should be more specific an over threshold uh, experience where Uh, You know, Terence used to talk about heroic doses and this sort of thing, but it takes, you know, a certain amount to have a certain experience, I think, and I think that's well-documented in the literature. But at any rate, the mushroom or something does actually appear to speak and will address you by name, as a matter of fact, and tell you, did you know this? I bet you didn't know this, Or (laughs) you know? Exactly. And uh, so but well, it also sh- uses visual metaphors as well like you say it can see, can show you the cosmos in an afternoon or something
3: well it is very interesting uh, terence also pointed out that different psychedelics had different sort of characteristics like for example ayahuasca mm. DMT dimethyltryptamine you take that and it just really connects you in your into your humanness
4: mm. and the earth
3: And the earth and and uh, psilocybin mushroom seems to be much more about just galactic yeah. dimensions of time. So it's interesting yeah. that there is this common thread with Terence's work with the the mushroom and then his revelation of the mathematical structure of the I Ching. And, and then um, I, I guess I, I should confess that while I was doing my, my integrative synthesizing research in the, in the early 90s, mm-hmm. Uh, That period of time for me was uh, highlighted by three or four very powerful uh, psilocybin mushroom trips that I did at the time. and I'd have to say that it probably helped me. uh, The creative integration that takes place after that, of course, it helped me um, integrate and see the big picture. Of all the research that I was availing myself of, the, the academic research and how these things all fit together, I mean, there were definitely two or three uh, sort of mini Satori moments mm. of of getting it, of how right. the end date alignment scenario was part of the creation myth and part of the sacred ball game, and it was integrated and mm. encoded into the. The king-making ceremonies and all these things were things that nobody else had seen before, yeah. and, and I can only attribute it to, um, you know, being open to seeing the connections.
0: Right, amazing. Well, it's time to get beyond, you know, this idea that cert- you know, we we have the, we have a real problem with quote unquote drugs, and w- one of the biggest problems is language that we use one word to describe a whole lot of different things, and uh, it turns out there are some drugs or compounds that are well worth uh, investigating and there are some that are damn straight you better stay away from and it's about time we start to come face to face with the realities of what's happening with all of these different compounds I mean we, we we pump people full of Oxycontin as long as they got a prescription from some uh, whoever and I mean this is heroin you know exactly. so so we got a real problem with that as a culture in general and the whole uh, the whole western scene but you know that's a conversation for dennis mcKenna and and uh, and Richard Glenn Bohr, the guy that runs cognitive liberty, who uh, who's going to be on the show in in April. So so, you know it's about taking control and keeping control of your own mind and your own body and being uh, being able to make adult decisions about what you do with it and and what experiences you're allowed to have and which ones you're not allowed to have. I mean, that's just an infantile approach. You know, for anyone to look at an adult American in this country, that's what we're all about, right? An adult American should be able to make a decision about his own, his own or her own experience as long as you're not harming anybody. So let's get on with it, you know?
3: Well said. I agree completely. And uh, the argument, the legal argument that, well, if one person abuses it, we should control it and make it illegal. Well, that gets to the question of what a person's intention is. I mean, you can abuse Kool-Aid, you know know. if that's your intention right
0: i mean look at alcohol look at tobacco if they were really concerned about people's health and this sort of thing look at coffee
3: Right. i mean my
0: god it's uh, terence used to rave about that you know i mean it's written into every labor contract in the western hemisphere (laughs) yet we know it does liver damage it does stomach damage it does kidney damage but it works well you know if you want to get a guy a couple extra hours of widget twisting or whatever so it's it's a matter of the drugs that work out best for the cultural paradigm. It seems
3: exactly, you know? exactly. It's an extreme hypocrisy as well. Oh, yeah. And
0: really, and and I mean at a time where uh, where where it's becoming critical. So we'll, I, I, you know, we'll we'll find out. But at any rate, I certainly do not judge you for uh, for your investigation, your experiences, and I and I, I applaud anyone who's got the the guts to be a, a, an adult and and at least a uh, you know, in, invest an afternoon to find out what this is all about. I mean, these chemicals that we're talking about, and and we'll be very clear about it. They're they come right from the Mother Earth herself, and they're very similar, uh, sometimes identical. In the in the in the case of dimethyltryptamine, this actually exists in the human brain. Uh, psilocybin is a is a cousin of dimethyltryptamine, but it's uh, again very very close to a certain. Uh, chemicals that already exist in our own metabol uh, that are metabolized in our own system, including serotonin and uh, uh, melatonin, and a lot of these interesting things that are related to dreaming. So anyway, uh, it's ridiculous, uh, and I could just go crazy about it. John, jeez.
3: Well, the, so then the the whole thing then with the too to bring this back full circle. Another thing that's a slam dunk about. You might say the psychedelic cosmology that was formulated at Azapa.
4: Mm-hmm. I mean
3: this entire paradigm in which this galactic cosmovision, this alignment that happens at the end of their calendar cycle and how that, that's somehow involved in the transformation of the species and how that's integrated into the ball game. Uh-huh. Another slam dunk, not only the, uh, the ritual mushroom stones, but there's a carving at Azapa. And it's of a, a frog or a toad, okay. and it's this toad is like sitting on its haunches upright, and in the mouth of the toad, his his mouth is like his neck is like craned back, and his mouth is open, and in in the open mouth you see a little canoe boat with a little shaman sitting in it. So this is the huh. image of the shaman taking the vision journey into the mouth. Uh, of the frogs. Yeah,
0: amazing. And this is Jonah and the whale. It's the same story.
3: Exactly, into the belly of the beast. And now on the back of this toad, there's these little dots, which is where the parotid glands of the Bufo Marinus toad, which contains the 5-MeO-DMT compound. Right, right another scenario. And moment. then there's vision scrolls, this little motif that scholars recognize as vision scrolls, are coming out of the holes on its back oh my God. so that's a slam dunk and that indicates that is the Azopins were availing themselves of uh, of a form of DMT as well so it's pretty amazing I mean uh, you know the history of Western science seems to be just plodding in comparison to uh, ancient cultures that just turbocharged the process with these uh, substances
0: amazing amazing and so uh and so to wrap things up with terrence uh let's talk a little bit at least about his angle on the whole thing and and how how he eventually came to write uh the introduction to your book the 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 stunner uh maya cosmogenesis 2012 which was written or released what now eight years ago came
3: out in 98
0: right so um and and still absolutely stands you know amazing absolutely amazing work and for people if you haven't read it please uh do yourself a favor it's absolutely a stunning book and and i recommend all of john's work but gosh uh that that one just uh stands alone and it and it's available at his website certainly at uh alignment 2012.com and and i don't get anything for saying that so uh you know and and it's it's well and i don't say it very often i pick you know i, I do the show once a week john i wish i could do it every night but you know it's it's uh, it's it's a, a real honor and a, and a and a privilege to have you. Don't don't think I don't recognize that. So thank well, you.
3: Well, I appreciate that. Uh, that book was uh, really sort of um, I guess I considered it my magnum opus, and I, it did feel that way. And it certainly was um, something that important that emerged in um, all the research that came out on that. I think I put some some good solid things on the table mm-hmm. that were. Original and unique, um, you know. The there's an appendix in that book that traces the history of the idea of the galactic alignment. Because right. I don't claim that I, you know, was the first person to point out that this alignment was going to be happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a whole sort of genetic lineage that goes back. I, I think it goes back to the book Hamlet's Mill. Hamlet's
0: yeah, Mill Sant- or what
3: Yeah, it? Giorgio de Santillana, his yeah. historian and, and yeah. his partner Hertha Von and came out in 1969. Terence himself sort of pays homage to this as the source of his understanding that there was something some kind of alignment happening uh... around the turn of the millennium it's not very well pronounced in the hamlets mill book in fact people read the book and they don't even really see it there it has to be sort of deduced by implication Mm -hmm. with the main thesis that's in the book but nevertheless that that seems to be the origin of where of how this idea sort of entered the the modern late uh, 20th century discussion at least among sort of the fi- the fringe dwellers and then Terence of course was a person uh, Terence and Dennis in their book the invisible landscape came out right. in 75
0: right. 75 right
3: they they mentioned it and so that's when it really uh sort of entered i think anyway entered the uh, the discussion now there's been other you know writers and astrologers that have pointed out things with uh, the alignment and um, you know I think that even in the early 90s there was an assertion that the alignment might have something to do with 2012, mm-hmm. uh, but I didn't want to rest with a simple assertion because, you know, you can assert something, but what I wanted to do is to show how the Maya had encoded, you know, the question for me was, well, how do I? I, don't, I really don't believe it. Just for somebody to say that the galactic alignment has to do with 2012. Right. Well, it's like, wow. Well, that that sounds like it could be right. But I, I went into an investigation of all the Maya traditions. Um, you know, there's the the translation of of the creation myth by Dennis Tedlock, which mm-hmm. I, I know you're familiar with. The Tedlock, mm-hmm. and they are really. Amazing scholars, because Dennis, for example, uh, tuned into the astronomical dimensions of the creation myth and and a lot of his identifications were really keys for me with the end date alignment scenario, and it opened up to understanding how it's integrated into the ball game and and all that. So
0: yeah, John, yeah. are you familiar? There's another book actually that Dennis wrote relatively recently. It's called Rabinal Aki, or Rabinal Achi, and and again it's a story about a play. Um, I don't know if you if you've heard of it, but he just sent me a copy of it recently actually. But but I just wanted to ask if you if if the name even rang a bell.
3: Yeah, I'm familiar with Dennis's work with this. It's a the Rabinal Achi is the it's it's kind of like a modern performance ritual of certain stories of the Maya creation myth. Uh-huh. So they're kind of like modern survivals. Wow. In a sense, it's very similar to the Pyramid of Fire. Like, for example, if, if this Mazatec shaman and his troop of lineage holders would get out the manuscript and then perform the plays, perhaps you know during a certain ceremonial festival during the year or something like that, that's very much like what appears to survive with the Rabi Chi. In the highlands of Guatemala. Amazing. And so uh, Dennis really tuned into that, and and I'm sure that his book probably talks about the connections between it and similar stories in the uh, the Quiche Maya Popol Vuh stories.
0: Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, look, that's uh, another good place to take a break, I think. Okay. Okay. Um, we'll come back and let's talk a little bit about uh, the the documentary that you're that you're working on with Jay. Okay. Uh, with Jay Widener and, uh, I don't know, Then we'll, anything else for the last uh, Great. Little, little while, okay? All right. All right, let's have another song here also from uh, from our good friend Lucas. All right, Lucas, uh, enjoy yourself. What do you want to play for us? Uh,
1: this is an instrumental piece called The Albatross. The Albatross, all right,
0: perfect. Everybody, one more time, Lucas Klotzbach, live, Radio Orbit. Thanks for being here, Lucas, and to John Major Jenkins. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Mike Hagan. Uh, Check everything out on the web at MikeHagan.com. You can find information about Lucas and about John as well. Time, all right. Lucas Klotzbach. love it. We'll have one more from Lucas uh, in just about 20, 25 minutes or so. And uh, well, let's see, Lucas, what else? What are you gonna play for us later on? That's awesome. What was that one called? That the one's Albatross.
1: the Albatross. It's one that kind of kind of goes back. I can't remember the the poet that wrote that. Some English poet. The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Oh,
0: oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoever yeah.
1: wrote that. And that. I should that's, let
0: John jump in. Are you there, John?
3: Yeah, I think that was uh, Coleridge.
1: Yeah, that sounds right. I call it that because it's a song that I've I've been messing around with that for about five years. Huh. And, it, you know, every four or five months something new will happen to it and it'll change a little bit. And it's just kind of the, the song that I just can't quite finish, but I like the way it sounds.
0: Huh. All right, well, it sounded great right there.
3: Very nice. Yeah, I love that stuff.
0: All right. Hey, uh, thanks again, Lucas. We'll talk to you in just a few. And uh, in the meantime, we'll get back to John Major Jenkins. And by the way, everybody, this this program, along with the show that John and I did just a few weeks ago, actually about five or six weeks ago, they're all available on the web at MikeHagan.com. Just click on the archives page, and you can listen to them or download them and share them with your friends or whatever. And I encourage everyone to do that, okay? And uh, John's work uh, is available also at his website at alignment2012.com. So uh, put that in your bookmarks. And, of course, Lucas, one more time, at myspace.com slash klotzbach, K-L-O-T-Z-B-A-C-H. All right, and Lucas's information can be found on my site as well. Just click on the music tab. All right, okay, so um, John, back at it.
3: Well, Mike, I just wanted to... I I really appreciate uh interviewing with you and your program. I mean, there's uh it's such a great venue and I, and uh there's very few programs and interviewers out there that are really tuned into these things and it and it makes it uh, uh a lot easier for me to just have a conversation about these things.
0: Well, I so t- really
3: appreciate it. D- uh,
0: thank you. I appreciate you recognizing it, but uh there's no way I would have been able to were it not for people like you to believe it or not I mean I cut my teeth you know on your books and on Terence's books and on uh, you know Jay's work and all this stuff and and lots of other people too so I I learned from you guys and so I'm just I look at it as my opportunity to uh, to present a forum in which you can really speak uh, in in a way where you can really get 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 to the meat of things,
3: right? But interviewers, I think, have a unique perspective because, in time, you interview such a wide spectrum of people that you you have a much broader understanding of what's really going on.
0: Wow. Well, I'll tell you what. My my broader understanding is that is that uh, what's coming through in your work and lots of other people's work is exactly what's happening. I mean, uh, there really is this sort of acceleration in every area that you look. It seems like. Yeah. And, and and I I mean I guess it takes us back to the the sort of novelty uh theory and we never really did uh, talk too much about what that is maybe you could talk a little bit to that about the I Ching and novelty mm-hmm. theory and what that means but you know and as a as a layman you know and i'm not a scientist or anything i'm sort i consider myself sort of a generalist you know mm-hmm. uh but i but i do have a knack for looking at lots of different things and picking out people that you know that can communicate those sort of things and and i see just more confirmation of uh of the ideas that are coming through in your work, I just see it in different ways. You know what I mean?
3: We do seem to be in an era of a paradigm shift.
0: Mm, man, I mean, it is just, and I mean, and everybody feels it, John. It's, uh, uh, I don't know what it's like in your community, or you know, or what your social uh, life is like, or you know, who you hang out with, that sort of thing. But around here, like in a radio station, you know, and there's lots of people that come through here, and I'm, I'm a pretty social guy. I get out a lot and stuff. And uh, there's certainly a sense with everyone that something is going on. I mean, and it's not the news of the day. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. not uh, the news of the day. It's something else. It's not being televised, in other words.
3: Well, I think that a lot of the news of the day is sort of uh, the surface noise. And that's it, much more serious than that, of course, with all the stuff going on in the world today. But there's a deeper thing going on, I think, in, in the... Uh, The creative realm, like this past weekend, I participated in a a zine fest. You know, like well, zines like magazines, independently produced, uh, creative, uh, even just little brochures or things that people print up or go to the Xerox store and have booklets. And it was put on by my my friends at Iron Feather Journal in Denver. And just there's a real buzz, and it's all about like People coming together and sharing their creativity and, and, and it's all, uh, just the sky's the limit with with what you can do. And, and it's, it is really exciting just in the print medium, uh, to, to be able to like produce something and run off a hundred copies of it and, and it only costs you 50 cents to do it or something and, and share it with people. So there's a, there's a real creativity astir.
0: You know, it's amazing that that, that you mention print because I've been having a conversation on another with with another person recently about uh, the similarity between the revolution that happened when the printing press was invented and developed, and the similarity of what's happened as the internet has developed.
3: Oh yeah, no doubt.
0: And uh, it's just uh, astonishing, you know, what uh, the 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 availability of information and the ability to transfer information you know
3: and technological developments i think are an indicator of something too like you were mentioning the nanotechnology my
0: gosh i mean this is just out of this world yeah
3: that's incredible i mean it's it's almost like uh there there's uh the, the stuff that we're most familiar with or a lot of people are just acquainted with going on in the world today well there's Dimensions of stuff that just are really going on and really happening right. that it just sound like science fiction right but it 's true
0: I know it 's amazing it 's like if you if you really want to stay au courant you know i mean you got basically it means you got to read uh the new publications from the journals every three days or something and that means you got to do it in astrophysics you got to do it in chemistry you got to do it in genetics you know i mean come on
3: yeah there's a there's a big menu of stuff that people can sink their teeth into i guess i still have the feeling though that this 2012 thing and specifically the area of the 2012 thing that would address this rare astronomical alignment, the galactic alignment, which is a real thing—it's right. not just a fantasy prophecy or something.
0: Right, which we have to—we have to remind everyone that's what—that's what this whole thing, that's why this whole conversation began, was because this alignment is going to happen, is really going to happen uh, on December twenty-first of of the year twenty-twelve, basically six years from now.
3: Right, right, and and it's a question as to why it still seems to be. You know, uh, flying under the radar to some extent. Because when I first got into this and understood that there was this alignment that was happening, you know, in in our era, and it only happens once every 26,000 years, I was just amazed that it wasn't something that teams of scientists from the United Nations weren't just on it. You know
0: it is. It's like it should be in four inch headlines, you know, or something. But then so many other things should be as well, I guess, including one of the ways that you learn about this thing.
4: Yeah, true.
0: <laughs> so uh you know it's Terrence used to talk about secrets that keep themselves.
3: Right. <laughs>
0: this seems to be one of those things, you know. That's
3: true. That's that's very interesting. Uh yeah. That that could be very much a part of what this is about. Yeah, it's
0: really wild actually, John, because I mean I'm screaming it from the rooftops, you know.
3: Well, it is an entree into uh, a deeper examination of humanness and what it, you know, it's its just a deeper engagement mm. with um, mysteries, I guess. And oh, so people that are prone to be attracted to that will find it, but those that aren't will, um, you know continue on their way
0: yeah yeah. i mean it literally doesn't even it doesn't even blip the radar that was in in fact it's really funny and since we're talking about it you know i'm in the middle of missouri and and i sit here on monday nights and i talk about all this wild stuff including things like you know schedule one substances that i you know that i think are are wrongly classified psilocybin this sort of thing right i mean for a long time i thought my gosh they're gonna come and haul me away you know but no, it it goes completely. It's not even on the radar apparently.
3: It's just yeah, because to me. society has learned to have a category for for people that talk about that, <laughs> In the same way that like tie-dye T-shirts were a symbol of your rebellion right. in the uh, 1960s and now now they've been appropriated by the culture at large and you can get them at the the corner, you know, Kmart or something. Right, right, and right. so they, the the symbol has lost its transformative power. Hmm.
0: very interesting.
3: Because it's been appropriated by the mainstream culture. Now it's just a fashion statement.
0: <laughs> very interesting, John, amazing.
3: But it is interesting because it does have to do with media and, you know, I, I think that you know people like uh, yourself that are you know providing a, a pavilion for these these progressive edge ideas and Jeff Stray who's mm. put together this book and and also along those lines um, Jeff Stray was in the states recently and uh, Jay Widner the videographer took the opportunity to to interview Jeff for the. Documentary that Jay is uh, producing on the 2012 phenomenon. Really?
0: So, Jess involved in that too? Yeah,
3: yeah. Oh, that's
0: cool. You know what? Yeah, Jay's done, he's interviewed a bunch of amazing people for that thing
3: Greg Braden, Gene Houston, uh, myself, I believe even like Jose Arguez. Yes, he interviewed
0: and, Jose Arguez,
3: yeah. Right? And, and so, it's going to be, and I think that's an amazing thing to be pull, pulling it all together because. You know, really, there's only a handful a handful of people that are that are talking and writing about 2012 at this yeah. point.
0: And again, one of the things uh, that 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 you brought up earlier is that as we approach and as we get closer, and I'm already seeing it now. You know, the 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 2012 experts, quote unquote, are coming out of the woodwork already, and I I think it's uh, important for people to recognize uh, the the innovators and the people that were looking at this stuff uh, early on. Uh, people like yourself, people like Jeff Stray, who you mentioned, is sort of acting as a really good filter, and not in a bad way. And I don't, I, I don't want to, you know, I'm I'm not a fan of censorship in any way. Trust me. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, when you have all kinds of things coming at you, you have to be able to assess them. Right. Um, so yeah, and guys like like you and Jay and uh, and Dennis, interestingly enough, although he he stays quite far away from the days of La Chavera. Uh, these days, but I know that it's not that far from his mind, quite honestly. And uh, you guys are are the are the boatmen, I think. So,
3: oh, that's an interesting way to put it. I I think that is it is an evolving discussion, and we can all uh, join in uh, because I think as an archetype, the 2012 symbol or image, um, you know, beyond like say just focusing on my. Archaeophilosophical reconstruction Mm -hmm. in a universal sense. Twenty twelve is an archetype that all human beings can engage with because it has to do with our relationship to the great mystery, and that's uh, you know the unknown. And and that is sort of a way to think about it because nobody really knows what uh, what that's going to be about if we accept that it's a doorway into the great mystery or the unknown. But then it's a question of how we are going to relate to that. Are we going to clamp down in fear and you know give our attention to the to the fear mongers and the doomsday prophets or are we going to open up to the great mystery yeah. in a kind of love or trust as as to um, understanding that the universe is a place that wants us to evolve yeah. and we open up to it
0: well and interestingly that's what uh, part of novelty theory that that Terence uh, developed, sort of suggested, you know, he talked about how the universe. He called it a novelty conserving engine or a complexity conserving engine. He mm-hmm. he believed that the universe favored complexity and moved towards greater complexity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would and that would apply to us as well. And that and and it, why not? I mean, we. I think you and I talked about it a little the last time we were we were on the air together. But the idea of of evolution as nostalgic (laughs) you know it's not it's in fact there was an article very recently uh yesterday or the day before about how genes are being discovered now that are already being shown to be different than when they were originally discovered you know what i mean wow so evolution is like sort of showing itself in real time Uh and uh part of me has to think about you know these these endogenous tryptamines, the DMT in the brain, and you know, if a shift in in those levels occurs, which is just a shift of a molecule away or something very simple, you know, uh, then maybe there is. I mean, there really can be a, a shift in consciousness or uh, or a new species or, or, or something even, you know.
3: Well, that gets into some of the connections that Jeff Stray was making, in which he pulled. Together, the research of uh, bio-endocrinologists or biochemists who noticed that um, I not, probably won't summarize this very well, but it had to do with uh, the relationship of our planet to um, the galactic center throughout the year as we move, as the sun moves around, and as we move around the sun and our orientation. Uh, sort of a phase, angular orientation between our Earth, the Sun, and the galactic center, and that there were demonstrable relationships uh, in the secretion of endogenous, uh, like from the pineal gland, mm. where we have neurotransmitters that are very similar to the uh, psychedelics. And um, the grand synthesis that Jeff pulled together in his book had to do with... Um, uh, these connections between the galactic center and these neurotransmitters, which uh, seem to be the regulators of, of, you know, consciousness, and there's so many uh, conversations that can launch off mm-hmm. from these things. And getting into Terence's theory is is probably uh, something that we should focus on in a future interview because it's very interesting. Like the 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 undeniable um, inspiration that I I've received from you know my correspondence with Terence back in the early nineties right. of course and the similarities mm-hmm. uh but also um, sometimes it's necessary to be very clear with the distinctions between my work and his work uh and yet we're all sort of on the same in Mm -hmm. a sense because Mm -hmm. we're all sort of grappling with the same mystery and uh and and that's sort of a unifying thing that we should really recognize like even some of the authors that are uh writing you know really goofy things about uh the Maya calendar in 2012 i have to recognize them as being sort of in in the in this like uh colleagues in Mm -hmm. a sense because Mm -hmm. we're all trying to grapple with this this strange thing and I think as we get closer to 2012 more and more people are going to be interested in it and uh, I think that it can serve as sort of like an initiation into um, you know people having a deeper dialogue with with uh, um, these amazing things like a lot of people uh, don't don't really haven't been predisposed to 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 think about spiritual things at all, so it oh, can be I a real know. opening. For yeah, I mean
0: we, we've had 500 years of just beating that into the ground, you know, of materialism so hard and steady that to the point where you know if you can't beat it with a hammer, it doesn't exist. Well, people, maybe that's part of it, John. Is it you know maybe it's going to become. <laughs> you know patently obvious that that's not the case and it could just make people just flip out you know
3: mm-hmm. well it's it's going to be some interesting times and, and I'm looking forward to um, a couple of good events that I have coming up if I could just mention that. yeah
0: please tell us what's going on
3: well they're just getting formulated but they're definitely going to happen there's an event in Santa Fe that I'm doing and it's uh, going to be April 8th and it's going to be at the James Little Theater and I'm going to be giving a presentation and also uh, giving a presentation is going to be Karen Bolander-Klaus who's a, oh. a Jungian astrologer who's been interested in the 2012 topic.
0: Yeah, so, yeah, Carl Jung's wrapped up in this whole thing too.
3: Yeah, I believe so because uh, one serious aspect of all this is the psychological projections that happen around uh, when people encounter this idea of an end date there is an immediate sort of psychological response that happens and, and there is a process that people go through as they, as they grapple with what is this 2012 thing mm-hmm. and uh, so that is going to be interesting um, and then there is uh, another event that I am doing April 29th in San Diego. So that these are some good events that are coming up, and uh,
0: Who, who's sponsoring these sorts of things these days, John?
3: Well, uh, Karen herself sort of pulled this together in association with the uh, uh, Santa Fe Astrological Association. Uh-huh. Cool. And uh, a lot of times these things just require a couple of people getting together to organize it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've, I'm so grateful for. The 2012 Odyssey documentary that Jay Widener's producing because as with Jeff Stray's book, we, we need to have, uh, you know, continuing serious discussion to raise the bar, uh, of, of, uh, how we approach the 2012 topic. And, uh, so the more conferences that happen along these lines, I think the better, you know, to, um, you know, keep, uh, Getting input into the evolving discussion.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I agree with you. You know, in fact, we should think about uh, about doing a show sometime in the future with you and Jay together, maybe, sure. or, or or you and Jeff, or whatever. The three of you. I don't care. You know, we 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 start getting creative. You know, if, if there's anything that that uh, that I've learned, you know, it's that like you, like you've been talking about, it's the imagination. Let it fly. We can do amazing things. You know,
3: definitely. We've got yeah. technology
0: now, and the technology is getting to the point where we can manage it pretty well even if you're just regular people so
3: (laughs) well for sure all right well look
0: um let's uh well we've actually got a few more minutes let me check my email real Okay. okay and let's see if we have anything real anything more here okay well here's a simple one what after 2012
3: (laughs) (laughs) um well let's see there's (laughs) many ways to sort of sort of approach that
0: maybe everything i don't know
3: well, it's definitely not the end of the world. Um, so I guess if we thought of 2012 as our encounter with the cosmic wisdom or something, uh-huh. um, I guess it's the challenge of how we bring that back down into the world and, and integrate uh, the new information. I guess it has to do with how we are going to... Well, let, let's say that... 2012 is a great opening to the transcendent, eternal, cosmic wisdom. So we all sort of get a glimpse hmm. of, of that. How do we then come back to our lives? Uh, like if, if tomorrow you were to have a vision of God, which is just to say you, you had a vision of the eternal, infinite uh, nature of, of true reality, let's say then how would you how would your life change you know how would you go about integrating that realization into your daily life i think that you know that that would be pretty interesting
0: john because because the uh the analogy that this is clear to me that that i might as well make it's two o'clock in the morning they haven't killed me yet (laughs) uh is is that is that it resembles the psychedelic experience in other in other words that's exactly what happens when you take The mushroom is that, you know, you have that glimpse for a few hours. You can get a look at it, and it and it and it shows you quite clearly what it's about, and then it goes away, Mm
4: -hmm. and then you
0: have to incorporate it. You have to come back into life uh, and do your job and take care of your family or whatever. But with that experience in your tool bag now, right? Mm -hmm. And how do you how do you shape your life after you've seen it? Yeah. And 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 that really is the question and and for people like you and obviously people like me, uh it it is a life-changing thing because uh it it helps us along the way apparently. At least it sure seems like that to me. And all, and and there's this weird convergence going on with a bunch of us. I mean, I don't I I didn't find you by chance, you know? Mm-hmm. And we don't have a rapport by chance. It's there's a reason for all this stuff, it seems. I can't help but think that.
3: I really like that question, though, because it brings up a couple of things. Uh, number one uh, is that it, it brings up, I guess, what I would I would sort of identify as, I don't want to say misconceptions, but uh, sort of half-true conceptions, perhaps, at least from my perspective. One is that the Maya calendar definitely ends on December twenty first, 2012. Well, that's not consistent with the cyclic nature of time that mm. the Maya offer us. Um, and another, another thing that comes up a lot is, um, and I'm not really sure how to, to really process this, but in Terrence's model, his model requires that the time wave ends on that specific date. And, I, and I'm never really clear. I mean, I don't really know how to process that because from my perspective, it has to do with this Culmination, this astronomical culmination. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then again, um, if you disconnect from that perspective and you see it as sort of a, 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 br- a rupture of plane mm-hmm. in some kind of internal visionary sense, mm-hmm. uh, then th- th- there's one danger in that, though, that I that I don't, I'm not real comfortable with, and it has to do with putting all your eggs in one basket for something to happen on that specific
4: day because
3: then we get habituated to projecting into the future and we don't get involved in being present in the present moment because that's the only place where enlightenment or whatever is going to happen is if we can go deeper into the present moment. So if we habituate ourselves to projecting into some future date, then we're going to sort of miss the boat.
0: Right. And, and, and you made it clear the last time we spoke about how all of these changes, they're, they're, they don't happen at one particular moment. They're gradual. You slide into it. You have a peak moment and then you sort of slide out of it.
3: And that's the ups and downs of, of life.
0: Well, there you have it. All right, John, thank you so much. All right.
3: Well, thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it. And two in the morning, it's the... Uh, Ides of March
0: Eve yeah it sure is
3: and it's a full moon
0: it is and uh, we've got the equinox coming up and uh and more interesting times ahead of us for sure so i'll I'll be in touch John and and uh, we'll certainly do this again and we'll come up with some fun uh some fun ways to do some new stuff too okay
3: sounds good thank you Mike and thank you Lucas thanks
0: John all right wonderful we'll have one more from Lucas actually to finish things off and uh, uh John I'll talk to you soon okay Alright, so everybody, that was John Major Jenkins, and uh, information about John certainly can be found from my website at MikeHagan.com or directly at alignment2012.com. Alignment2012.com. We got another song here from Lucas, my friend Lucas Klotzbach, been uh, an amazing uh, friend and compadre tonight providing music for us for the last three hours, and uh, it's going to make a beautiful art piece, this entire program. So uh, thanks, Lucas, to you. And uh, i got a few minutes to wrap things up here. And uh, for everybody else, Lucas, available www.myspace.com slash Klotzbach, K-L-O-T-Z-B-A-C-H. And this is Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit. I'll be back at you next week. My guest is Michael Tserion, We'll be talking about the Irish origins of civilization on the equinox. So come on back.